Digital Gonzo, episode 109, dated Thursday the 8th of November 2012, The Lord of the Rings Prologue. Eleven years ago, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy first hit the big screen. In just a few short weeks, the Hobbit trilogy will begin. In celebration of this event, Digital Gonzo is covering every film. To say these are my favourite movies of all time falls somewhat short of the mark. It's better described as my favourite experience of all time, and somewhere way off in the distance, The Avengers marks where all other movies start to measure up. To call these shows reviews, again, falls somewhat short of what I'm attempting here. I'm not assessing the quality or the merit of seeing them. That much is soaked into every frame. Instead, this will be a deep exploration of every aspect of production and how this has impacted upon us. Very few other films will warrant two podcasts each. But these are so densely packed with detail and there is so much to say that in the interest of not becoming exhausted during recording, we're covering them over two nights per film. Next episode, we will start a two-part podcast covering 2001's The Fellowship of the Ring. After that, two episodes each on The Two Towers and Return of the King, respectively. And finally, our eighth show will cover The Hobbit, Part 1, An Unexpected Journey. This first episode, we're talking about the books, the animated films, the radio plays, and the games. Now, we can't possibly cover everything here. The purpose of this show is to give these other ways of absorbing the story their own podium, including, of course, the crucial source text. And I'm keeping the team small on this one, partly because of the immense amount of work I would require everyone to commit to, partly for focusing the discussion, but mostly because this series happens to be my absolute speciality. My two companions for the long haul are my wife, Sharon Shaw, of Dorkcast. Good evening. One of the only people I've ever met who can match my enthusiasm on these films, hence our Lord of the Rings-themed wedding in 2005. And Chris Eason of Gameburst. Make of on who brings a closer familiarity with the book itself to the table. So you are our literary specialist, Chris. Or is that because I've read it recently? (laughs) Basically, yes. We both tried. We'll come to that in just a bit. Okay, so we're going to start out with a quick timeline just to get everyone's heads in the right place. This starts 120 years ago, uh, in 1892, when J.R.R. Tolkien was born. Then in 1937, The Hobbit, or There and Back Again, is released. It was originally written in the early 1930s and stayed in manuscript form until 10-year-old Rainer Unwin reviewed it for his father Stanley, who happened to be a partner in a major publishing firm. 1954, after 12 to 14 years of writing, accounts have varied, The Lord of the Rings is published over three volumes. It was originally intended to just be one massive book. They decided to put it out as three. 1973, J.R.R. Tolkien dies. 1977, The Silmarillion is published. It is an Old Testament-style history of ancient Middle-earth compiled and completed by John's son, Christopher, following his father's notes. Uh, Also in the same year, Rankin Bass released their TV special based on The Hobbit. 1978, Ralph Bakshi's animated Lord of the Rings film based on the first two books is released theatrically. It does not get a sequel. 
1980, Rankin Bass released their TV special based on Return of the King. 1981, the BBC released a 26-part radio play starring Ian Holm as Frodo. There was also a 1955 BBC production and a 1979 US version. 1988, a five-piece set for concert band Symphony No. 1, The Lord of the Rings, is composed by Johann de May. Two thousand and one to two thousand three, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy are released over these three years. Two thousand six to two thousand seven, a major Lord of the Rings musical is released in Toronto and London's West End. And twenty twelve, after years in development limbo, the first part of the Hobbit trilogy is released in cinemas. It's been quite an eventful hundred and twenty years, but most of the interesting, important stuff all happened in the past thirty five years. So John Ronald Raoul Tolkien was an English writer, poet, philologist, and university professor. Born on the 3rd of January 1892 in Bloemfontein in the Orange Free State in South Africa to Arthur and Mabel Tolkien, the couple had left England when Arthur was promoted to head the Bloemfontein office of the British Bank, for which he worked. Tolkien had one younger brother, Hilary. When he was three, his father died of rheumatic fever, leaving Mabel and the two boys in England. This left the family without an income. So Tolkien's mother took him to live with her parents in King's Heath, Birmingham. Tolkien was Rawlinson and Bosworth Professor of Anglo-Saxon at Pembroke College, Oxford, from 1925 to 1945, and Merton Professor of English Language and Literature there from 1945 to 1959. He was, at one time, a close friend of C.S. Lewis, as in the guy who wrote The Chronicles of Narnia. They were both members of the informal literary discussion group known as The Inklings. After his death, Tolkien's son Christopher published a series of works based on his father's extensive notes in an unpublished manuscripts, including The Silmarillion. These, together with The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings form a connected body of tales, poems, fictional histories, invented languages, and literary essays about a fantasy world called Arda and Middle-earth within it. See, I'd never heard that the actual world of Middle-earth that Middle-earth resides in is called Arda. In fact, frankly, Middle-earth is the continent, as far as I can tell. Really? Yep. Well, the West is another part of Arda. I suppose so, yeah. I always assumed Middle-earth meant... The entire planet. The world, because it was, it was, wasn't it supposed to be, um, something to do with Norse mythology? Hang on. Um, in Tolkien's Legendarium, Arda is the name given to the Earth in a period of prehistory wherein the places mentioned in the Lord of the Rings and related material once existed. It includes several seas and oceans and the continents of Middle Earth, the Dark Lands, and Armen, the Undying Lands, that would be the West, as well as the islands of Numenor and other lands left largely unnamed by Tolkien. So Middle Earth would be the equivalent of Westeros in uh, yeah. Game of Thrones, then. Yeah. Yeah. While many other authors had published works of fantasy before Tolkien, the great success of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings led directly to a popular resurgence of the genre. This had caused Tolkien to be popularly identified as the father of modern fantasy literature, or more precisely of high fantasy, with Conan being low fantasy. In 2008, The Times ranked him as sixth on the list of the 50 greatest British writers since 1945. Forbes ranked him the fifth top-earning dead celebrity of 2009. So the book. 58 years old this October just gone, The Lord of the Rings remains the second most popular book of the 20th century. 
If there are any major fans of the book listening who are still angry that Weta did such a terrible job of adapting Tolkien's work, please do not email me about it. I've read many statements and haven't found one I agree with. This is not a challenge. Professor Tolkien wrote this enormous epic in a straightforward, classical, some might say biblical style, depicted as a historical account of events from the point of view of four hobbits. The films had a completely different remit, having to condense the established work and extended texts into something that would jump between a broad cast of characters, each given their own development arc. This accounts for the renewed focus on characterization and drama. I can now talk to you, Chris, about this. Because Sharon and I got up to just before Tom Bombadil. Sharon, did you even get that far? I don't think I did, to be honest. Right. Sharon, you've never read this entire book. I actually read the whole thing in 2001, just before the film came out. It was a slog, and I carried around the omnibus with me wherever I went. And every time I was sat down at a bus stop, I'd whip it out and start reading. And it took ages to slog through, but I got there in the end. So I do remember most of the book, but the details are somewhat blurry over the years now and have, of course, been over, overlaid with everything, the, the events of the film. So, Chris, did, have you finished it yet, recently? Uh, yeah, I, f- I finished Return of the King on a, a few days ago. Gotcha. Well, thank you very much for doing that for the show. <laughs> What's it like for you reading through that now? Because, I mean, um, what's your perspective? I find them very relaxing to read, which is a bit strange when you say they're very dense. Um, mm. I think it's because, I mean, I, the first time I read them was after, I mean, I, I watched the first film before I'd read the books. Right. So I wasn't very much a reader when I was that age. How old were you um, in, in 2001? Uh, 13. Whoa! <laughs> I was 21, Sharon was 23. So, so it's relaxing. Anything else? Yeah, um, there are parts of it. Like the songs are awful. Just get that out of the way. The first, I, I, there's, there's sort of no redeeming qualities to any of the the songs in the Lord of the Rings. Uh, Misty Mountains from the Hobbit is good, but the rest of them are awful. And I'm so glad they were not in the film. Well, the, Most the of them. The, the, a couple of them do film. actually... Uh, when we see the films, we okay, mean the films, basically. Yeah. When we talk about the animated film, we will very specifically refer to them, but when we yeah, say I films, think, we mean 2001 through 2003. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple... Um, yeah, um, I don't know if it was Howard Shaw or Peter Jackson picked out the, the good ones, but... Um, the there, good it's ones. usually like passages from certain songs turn up, like the, uh, the one that Pippin sings at the end of... Sorry, in the middle of Return of the King. That's in yeah. there. And that's, I mean, that, and that's mainly good because it's a very good tune. Yeah. Um, I think the problem with going back to the, the animated stuff, they've got the songs done to a bad tune, which makes it even worse. Yeah. Roast them alive. Or stew them in a pot. Fry them. Boil them. Eat them hot. Bake and toast them. Fry and roast them till beers blaze and eyes glaze till hair swells and skins crack. Fat melts and bones black and cinders lie beneath the sky. Sharon and I did read The Hobbit in entirety, just in preparation for the film. Uh, I haven't read that since I was 12. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult to get through. I, I, I think that's that's a lot a lot a lot easier to get through than the 
Um, but but again, that has one of the 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 most awful songs from the the sort of expanded universe, which is that I think that that uh, the ho ho my lad orcs song. So <laughs> bad. I think I pointed out the um, the elves singing their tinkly little, oh, yeah, funny little dwarves. I, I, I can see that put to the right music. I can see that working, especially if you sang it in Elvish. But the ho ho, my lads, is just. I think you definitely have to sing it in Elvish <laughs> to make it seem um, <laughs> somewhat threatening. Yeah, just that of it. But I can see that it just sounds like the, the elves are high at that point. Um, so no, I, what I don't want to do is enrage fans of the books. It's just my medium is absolutely film, as you may have worked out. Okay, while there are hundreds of small differences throughout, what are the notable changes from the book in the Wetter films, and what do these changes serve? Okay, so we're going to talk as though everyone listening has seen the films, and we will tell you how things are different in the books. Okay, so in the books, this is in roughly chronological order, there is a 17-year period clearly delineated between Bilbo leaving the Shire and Frodo leaving the Shire. Mm. And in the films, they chose to leave this ambiguous. They don't say that there's not 17 years, but they certainly don't say that there is 17 years. And more specifically, when Gandalf gives Frodo his quest, he goes, in the book, he says, right, I will wait until the end of the summer and I will move house to uh, ensure the pretense of, you know, where I'm going to be going, just so that no one's asking questions about where I am. And it's far more leisurely. There was a lot less, you know, huge amount of emphasis and pressure on Frodo moving straight away. Yeah, which is, I, I completely understand why they changed that. It does not work in a film whatsoever. Yeah, and they had to... Uh, specifically in the, the Lord of the Rings animated film, they do an, an awful um, time-lapse shot to show oh, oh yeah when he goes winter summer winter summer winter summer yeah it's just like they're just like oh new frame new frame new frame so they haven't even like melded it together they're just like no, new frame new frame new. it's just it, you, I don't that just doesn't work for film so I you know that's a definitely welcome change again they, they they shot it in an ambiguous way and ultimately Frodo is supposed to be 50 years old uh, when uh, he actually leaves the Shire which is almost exactly the same age as Bilbo was in uh, The Hobbit yeah I think the only thing it really shows that the 17-year wait is that um, Frodo is more cautious than Bilbo ended up becoming through The Hobbit, Mm. which if you don't know The Hobbit and don't know Bilbo is a bit of a pointless thing to have in there. And also the context, that was always something that never sat well with me because, I mean... Can you imagine Winston Churchill saying, right, Germany have invaded Poland, we're going to give them 17 years, <laughs> they're not out, we're going in. I mean, it, it is quite a... He knows by that point what a big situation this is that he's he's dealing with. Mm. I don't understand why a 17-year wait. 
I, I understand the principles of a wait, but I don't know why it had to be so long. There's more emphasis on in the book of Gandalf being not entirely sure that it's the one ring. Mm. But uh, 17 years is a long time to be looking through a library. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, I mean, it's could be a thing, 17 years, 17 sort of standard human years, which is not, seven, you know, the Hobbit year is when they live a lot longer than humans, so... You know, let's get um, off this point. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just m- moving furniture yeah. around on the Titanic. It doesn't matter, ultimately. They, but they it does it make ambiguous. complete sense that they took it out for the film. Okay. Yeah. In the books, there was a character who the four hobbits meet between Hobbiton and Bree named Tom Bombadil. This is kind of a, a, a merry, somewhat mystical cat weasel chap who lives in the forest and guides them through. I think he saves them from a particularly angry willow tree who actually turns up in the tree beard section of the film. It's kind of talking, examining someone who is a nature spirit of sorts and the idea that these sort of, you know, mystical beings exist in the world. It doesn't really move the story on at all and almost pretty much no production that has adapted Lord of the Rings since the book came out has included Tom Bombadil because he stops the story dead. He doesn't serve much purpose. I think his purpose is more to do with the um, adding depth to the mythology of Mm. this world, which when you're telling a specific narrative story you don't necessarily need and especially in film because you can use um, you've got visuals to tell you that this is a a world in which there's a lot of woods and they're very important to everybody and and it's it's in the way that sounds like a really simplistic way of saying it but because you're showing how people see things you don't necessarily need this very talky section Mm. to get across that feeling of a of a uh, a nature-oriented lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. And if, I mean, if you're trying to uh, sort of marry it to the sort of re- the realistic attitude that the fil- the films took, having someone walking around in yellow boots with a feather in his cap is not sort of <laughs> it sort of brings you out of the trying to make it a serious like the you know sort of real world yeah the, adaptation of it, it. It somewhat yanks away. Also, the the danger at this point is represented by the ring raids that there's. Stalking Frodo and the other hobbits, it, you know, this sort of let's come to Tom Bombadil's for tea and scones takes you out of that that sense of them being hunted across land. Yeah, I did actually. Um, he's actually quite an interesting character, sort of just in the book. I mean, I, I completely understand taking him out of everything else because he's not on the sort of surface. He's not a good character. But there was I found a quite a good article someone wrote trying to work out who he was. He's sort of in the the later sort of the the mythos of Middle Earth and you're trying to i mean he owns that land and that land is evil so that that they postulated that that makes him an evil spirit uh who lives with uh anthropomorphic personification of a willow who's goldberry so sort of uh, the character is interesting but he's not portrayed so in the books he's not portrayed well enough to keep <laughs> it's sort of interesting as a, as a sort of intellectual exercise to try and work out who he is but if you're trying to tell the story of the Lord of the Rings, he's, he's completely superfluous and should be taken out of every 
every adaptation because he's just not a good character. <laughs> and you need to propel the Hobbit at this point towards Bruce. Yeah, and especially if you it. do that, you've got to probably do the Barrow Downs bit, which, which completely haunts the story again. And yeah, the Barrow Downs bit involves the Hobbits getting stuck in uh, a burial ground, and uh, they come across very, you know, various weapons, which actually end up being, I think a couple of them are enchanted, because they, I think Mary helps dispatch the Witch King with one. Yeah, they're, they're made by the Men of Arnor to, to specifically to fight the Witch King, so they're gotcha. The, the things so I mean that sort of adds a nice nod to you know, later on but is, isn't needed yeah. in any way <laughs> also in the book Merry and Pippin corner Frodo and Sam and they go to visit Farmer Maggot they have some mushrooms there's a lot of going and having tea with people in the book yeah that's that's hobbits <laughs> a lot of bacon a lot of mushrooms um, and they uncover the conspiracy and they, they confront Frodo about it and say we're coming with you we are not letting you leave and go uh, go on alone. And it's really kind of a touching moment. Uh, in the film, it's like, hey, Frodo, what, 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 what are we hiding from now? And suddenly <laughs> they've joined up, uh, which makes it almost seem like Merry and Pippin joined by mistake as opposed to out of a decision on, on their own well, part. Well, that could still be happening. I mean, because I mean, Fro- uh, Sam's still clipping the flower bed late at night for no yeah. reason. So they could just be, oh, they happen quote-unquote happens to turn up for that <laughs> exactly at the right time. But yeah, like uh, with the 17 years, it's ambiguous as to... I mean, they, they left it so that when they turn up at Bree, they actually could have visited uh, Tom Bombadil and Goldberry and gone to the Battle yeah, of the Whites but not picked up the swords. I think that's a good idea to do it because I mean, it gives extra sort of lore for the people who've read the book and know what, what yeah. sort of the backstory is, but, but not... They don't turn off people who just want to watch the films. Yeah. They don't say, well, I'm really glad we didn't meet anyone else between here and the Shire. <laughs> um, okay, right, this is a major one. In the books, Saruman only appears briefly at the end of The Two Towers, as in he's only actually in the book. Uh, and instead, in the book, he's only spoken of by others and presented in flashback. In the books, all of the stuff that goes on with him happens elsewhere, and you get told about it by Gandalf and other people later. So you never get to really meet Saruman until when he's up at the top of the tower in Orthanc, and then he speaks to Theoden, and uh, and his voice is in, in incredibly compelling and charismatic, and everyone falls prey to it and, uh, and falls under his spell at that point. That's his only actual appearance. And ironically, in the theatrical cut of the Return of the King, that's the only bit he wasn't in. I mean, that's just a that's just a present you know, presentation style between books and and films is that you can show that without i mean if you when the books were written the way the books were written um i I think tolkien didn't want to skip between characters very much yeah um which i mean i I actually reading them for i I made me think a lot of game of thrones saying if it was done now would it be more sort of in the vein of game of thrones where you have you know sort of different character chapters where they could where they could insert sort of gandalf going to see saruman uh, just you know, in the middle of a Hobbit chapter, basically, and yeah. it would make the the way the books flow, especially in Two Towers and Return of the King, because they, they, I do not like the way they're split up at all. Yeah, it, it does start um, to weigh you down. I'm going to come to that in a bit, but yeah. the whole staying with Frodo and Sam for half a book in a row with no cutting away, it, yeah. it wears you down. There's only so many times you can describe depressing, barren rocks. Yeah. I think this does come back to why a lot of people said that the books were unfilmable as well, because they are 
You'd have a lot of people describing things going on, but you'd exactly. like, well, we, could we so, see that? So much of it, and, and this is true of The Hobbit as well, but, but so much of The Lord of the Rings is basically a Hobbit's interpretation of what they've been told after the fact by somebody else. Now, the, the, one of the fundamental rules of a film is you don't tell, you show. So if, if all it was was exposition for a handful of characters, then filtered through the Hobbit's perspective, that would be rather uninteresting. They still get into some major action set pieces, and they do meet some major characters, but there is a lot of stuff we don't see that they are not party to and have to have filled in. Uh, but also, here's the significant thing. Sauron is a nothing of a villain. He is a big, angry eye. And we don't even really get to see him in, in the book. We're just told about there's this sort of this eye in the, in the East. You know, in the film, they make him this far more malevolent presence. But even then, he's just an eye. Saruman is a Christopher Lee. He's goddamn Dracula. And he, he gets to be this in, incredible sort of narrator of the comings and goings of Middle Earth in, in, in terms of the power struggle. And, you know, that he wants to be a major part of that. I think also that adds extra um, kind of secondary characterization to Sauron as well. Because if, if Saruman who is Christopher Lee, who is incredibly frightening and Mm. incredibly knowledgeable and wise and powerful, is scared enough of Sauron that he would rather capitulate to him than than even attempt to stand against him. What does that tell you about Sauron? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Another difference. In the books, Aragorn is not filled with self-doubt and carries no sword, to begin with at least. He also carries the shards of Narsil with him. Yeah, this I'm, Tolkien's not very good at writing actions. So I don't think he thought when like you'll make one of the major characters carry shards of swords, how he'll actually survive in the world that he's created. Because yeah. you're not going to see much with like a bit, a bit of sword. Even um, though that pointy end of it is really quite, you could put an eye out with it, most definitely. <laughs> it's but it's a dagger. Yeah, it's a dagger it's with an unwieldy handle. It's not balanced correctly. And yeah, like, I mean, like you said in the the forums about the animated shows having Aragorn supposed to be a ranger so he, he would have a bow and he would have a, a proper sword and a dagger and he might carry the shards of as well but he in his have a pack sword. rolled up somewhere yeah but it, 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 in the prancing pony it's kind of around about the time when Sam bush, bashes through the door and goes back off or I'll have you long shanks he pulls out the shard of Narsil from his scabbard and sort of holds it up yeah. and it, it would look pathetic at that <laughs> yeah. point to go, I am the king and then to, to then explain what that means. Yeah, yeah it's, you need to have a sword that is famous enough that people know what it is and that they just don't for that. I mean, it's... The, the other thing, well, here's this significant thing about Aragorn. In the films, he has a three-film arc. He is filled with doubt and it's all about him taking his place as the king. In the books... He's sort of, well, I'm not sure. I'm going to become king at some point. I'm fairly certain of that. And I'm carrying this just on the off chance. But, you know, I'm just going to do my best until that point. And then when they go to Rivendell, they reforge the sword. And it's presented to him, Anduril, Flame of the West. And they give him a bejeweled, gold, blinged-out, Liberace scabbard covered in, um, you know, all kinds of lovely, beautiful, mm-hmm. precious jewels. And, and that's it. That's him for the rest of the book. I mean, he, he t- still takes a while to come out of his strider persona, and it's not really until he meets the Riders of Rohan that he suddenly, he's this sort of, you know, barrel-chested king type. But he gets there very quickly, and there's very little sense of self-doubt, because you're only ever seeing him from the eyes of the hobbits. 
Yeah, I think the difference is in the book he goes around with the the other rangers and as they are all descendants of Nunor, he is already the king technically. Yeah. They know he, he is the Dunedain. They know who he is, they know he's the heir of Gondor. He will become king at one point. In the films he is just a ranger and it is not explained who rangers are. Yeah. Um so there's more sort of sort of give to making just a ranger who can just he could just still be a ranger if he wanted to, but in in the books, there's he he you know he's, he's destined to become king, and he's always been king because he's been hanging around with the rangers who venerate him as king. Yeah, Gondor. Yeah, they've added a, a lot more conflict in the film to him there, and it, it takes up to the point where, and they even beyond that, when he gets given Anduril by uh, Elrond in the middle of Return of the King, he's not really king until he puts on the blue-black tabard with the Tree of Gondor on it and, and rides into battle to the Black Gate. Up to that stage, in the, yeah, in the extended edition, he literally has to hold the Palantir and hold up the sword and threaten Sauron to actually go, look, yeah. I am the king now. Which he does, a lot, he does a lot earlier in the books. But, yeah. um, so as I, what I have with the film, like, is he goes... He, I would probably get into what his accent changes so drastically. Mm-hmm. That um, yeah, I find that very good. <laughs> so they've done an arc with his accent. It does seem to change, especially depending on how loud he's shouting. <laughs> yeah, it starts off Irish, goes sort of English, then ends Irish for some reason. But, yeah, I, I, I don't know why in the film they didn't just have the Sons of Elrond bring in the sword and then just have that bit from the books. Because it's all about the fact that Elrond. And I don't know, but there's no reason for him, there's no reason for him to come all the way to Rohan and all the way back when. It sounds like everyone could come and then stay in fights and then go back. And well, it, it, like I said, it's it's mainly down to the fact that Elrond has always had a conflict with Aragorn himself as well. He sees him as the descendant of Isildur. He was right there. So him giving Aragorn Anduril is saying, "I believe in you. She believes yeah. in you. Take it." It's so much more symbolic than the sons of Elrond going. Our dad <laughs> says hi. Here's a sword. Cheers. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I suppose. Gotta disagree with you on that. It's the <laughs> could have sent it by Eagle. <laughs> well, I think sure, that's the whole of a debate. We are neither postmasters nor taxicabs. <laughs> okay. Arwen does not help save Frodo after he is stabbed at Weathertop. In the book, this was an elf named Glorfindel, who turns up, says hi, and then takes no further part in the proceedings. <laughs> yeah, the only thing that I like him being there because they they show this sort of duality of the elves uh, that went to the Undying Lands and came back that they they uh, are in the sort of physical world and the spectral worlds and that um, I mean the Ring Race just being scared of a bit of fire is is I think sort of slightly underplay, underplaying how strong characters they are but being scared of an elf of the elder days who has been to the Undying Lands has come back again is a bit more believable it's not just a bit of fire it's a bit of fire <laughs> wielded by the king of men and stuck in their chest at one point oh. yeah. he burns them but no actually, yeah, seriously the ringways shouldn't get that close to Frodo and then go fire I don't know what to think it was going to be fire and then run away but ultimately if the ringways are that close there's almost no way, other way you could really explain it. However, because they were going for as much realism as possible, they didn't want to start explaining the whole spiritual side of the elves that is going to make sense with everything else that's very practical happening around them. Well, they, actually, they did do it slightly, which doesn't work in the mythos that when Frodo was turning, he saw when 
Arwen rode in, she was glowing, but um, oh, yes. she hasn't been to the Undying Lands and come back again, so that doesn't actually work. But all right, well, I, yeah. I would say that was mainly down to the fact that she was absolutely stunning and glowing in her life. <laughs> I, think, I think that's what they were going for. That it's the, kind of a cheesecloth romantic vision of her. I think they'd probably just need to change it to say that all elves do that. I was um, going to say that's the way <laughs> it, it comes across to me is that that's how, in that state, that's how. Um, Frodo sees the elves generally mm. that they have this, you know, otherworldly glow about them. Pretty much everything to do with Arwen and Aragorn is not present in the book. She is a like not even a background character. She is, I think, she's in one maybe two scenes. She turns up at the end of the coronation, and um, she is she's at Rivendell, but I think she's sort of in the background and doesn't really speak to anyone. And just yeah. sort of point to her and go, Arwen, so you're marrying her at some point? Yeah, probably. Yes, um, she doesn't even give Aragorn sort of the even style. Nope, that was a creation of the films. I think, I think, she, I think, um, I think, uh, Ellen and Elrohid do bring it with them, from what I remember. No, nope, uh, I did some checking. That, oh, okay. yeah, that pendant gets given to Frodo at the very, very end, but it's, it's. Oh, that might be it. Well, yeah. it. Um, but yeah, it's I to do with Aragorn and Arwen. Yeah, I, Tolkien can't do romances either. <laughs> Although actually, he gets the 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 whole um, crush that uh, Eowyn has on Aragorn later on. You start to really feel for Eowyn. So most specifically, yeah. they had to make Arwen worth Aragorn. So otherwise, people would be like, "Why is he going to go with her again?" She's a flag. They had to, well, ultimately, they had to put a really a couple of really strong female characters in for the ladies. And for the men who want to see decent female characters, everything that happens in Lord of the Rings happens. The chaps are doing it. So, frankly, a couple of extra, you know, ladies being given decent parts, certainly not going to argue with. I am am so glad that Peter Jackson stopped where he did because the um, he watched the uh, extra stuff on DVD. Yeah, get to that. (laughs) Oh, that's so. Oh, getting to it. It's so bad. Okay, hold on. (laughs) Hold on now. Uh, so yeah, all of that stuff about uh, Aragorn giving back uh, Evenstar and saying you've got to go into the West. I, you know, there is no, there's no place for you. There's no place for us here. And Arwen's, you know, tell me what you've seen. All of that's in the creation of the film. All of that came from Peter and Fran and Pippa. It is not in the books at all. Arwen is and always was going to be marrying Aragorn, and that's it. She has no character to her whatsoever. Yeah. Well, it's just, I mean, basically, it's just a reiteration of the Baron Luthien yeah. story from the Silmarillion, which you need to have read that to get, really. <laughs> just don't really explain in the books. They do They do allude to the whole Baron uh, Luthien thing in, in the books, don't they? So you can, uh, yeah, you can infer that as characterization for Aragorn to know that it's on his mind, because that's all he tells the hobbits. Yeah, but not strong, not really strongly enough when she, he's supposed, she's supposed to be the love of his life yeah there's no huge sweeping romance in there which there absolutely no. is in the film so I mean Sharon are you quite glad they left the well they left the Arwen stuff they, they created the Arwen stuff yeah I mean uh, I think the argument that you need to have some strong female characters um, to to interest the women um, doesn't quite hold but I think if, the, if they hadn't done something um it would have been 
there'd be no balance to it. There's, you know, you, they're, they're doing it realistically. Well, in the real world, guess what? There are these things hanging around called women and they do stuff. And <laughs> if you, if you create an environment where there are no females doing anything of any, uh, not even significance, but, but nothing that's particularly visual, you just don't see them. They're just not around. Um, then that doesn't look real. That looks like a story that somebody wrote and forgot to put the women in. We were, um, we were attended two fellowship festivals in a row in 2004 and 2005, and 80, 90% of everyone who was in attendance was a woman. Yeah. There was and a fact, huge contingent of female fans of Lord of the Rings, and a massive part of that is the portrayal of the three important female characters. But doesn't um, Glorfindel usually get co-opted by the girls anyway? Yeah. I think that there were quite a few I women think, uh, dressed up as just as elves, and if you asked them, they were like, "I'm Glorfindel." Totally. So, um, but um, but yeah, I mean, you've you've got um, Galadriel has quite a strong role in the books. Yeah, but they expand um, it in the films again. They feature yeah. quite a lot. So it's it's not as if that that doesn't exist. And yes, you've got um, Eowyn's part as well. Although, I mean, and that's something that I know you're coming on to the fact that that's quite hidden until yeah. close to the end. Um, so, but, I mean, generally, they, they have a writing to, or the, you know, it was Peter women, Fran Walsh and, and Philippa Boyens, they, they weren't going to sit there and go, yeah, let's just have just chaps doing the fun stuff. Keep all yeah, the fillies in the background. <laughs> yeah, they definitely sort of strengthened Gladwell's role, because in the books, it, it sort of implies it's more, I mean, I know they go on about the Lady of the, the, lady of the Golden Wood, but it's like, the sort of impression when they have the meeting is that it's Lord Celeborn and just Lady Gaiva when the films it's more it's her forest yeah he comes across just her as husband. the consort he, yeah, yeah he is like the bit of pretty she keeps around he's apparently supposed to be one of the wisest elves in existence but he seems like a complete clod well it's like I mean in the Silmarillion she is far more of a character than he is yeah. um, I don't know if he's actually in the, in the Silmarillion at all but because she, I mean, she is one of one of the oldest elves left. Yeah, I think she's one of the um, oldest characters in the entire film. She's even older than Gandalf and Saruman. Yeah, I think she's. Well, I think everyone's near, but is she? You see, I can't remember. Well, she's always very had um, Nenya, hasn't she? So she's been around long enough to yeah. have been given one of the rings at the beginning. Yeah, I think she is the oldest character um, in Middle Earth. We can do our double checking, but if, <laughs> if she's not that, that you can see, she's, then, uh. Yeah, she's definitely one of the elves that goes to the Undying Lands and then comes round the frozen wastes, yeah. um, back to Middle Earth. But, um, and uh, yeah, as, as Sharon says, she's got one of the, the three rings, but she must have got those from Fionor. You do also get to see for like two seconds Gilgalad, the most important elf that ever lived. Yeah. We'll talk about that in the fellowship episode. <laughs> The character of Lurtz was created for the films to give Saruman's scout forces agency and leadership. Without him, they're just a bunch of Urukai. With him, there is a figurehead of terrifying Terminator-style stalking menace. Uh, Boromir dies at the beginning of the Two Towers in the books. This was a, a, a straightforward look. There is a fantastic climax that happens at the beginning of the next book. Since it was all supposed to be one big book anyway, let's just have this at the end and we can have that be the, the closer. Yeah, that's, that's such an awful decision. Really? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's all... I mean, 
Boromir dying, that, that ends the fellowship. Yeah. Um, I, that should be in the fellowship of the ring. It should not be in the two towers. The two towers should be. Starting with uh, Aragorn and. Starting uh, with Aragorn and Legos and running off, yeah. Um, so you, I, you think that his original decision to have that happen after the Fellowship of the Ring finishes, yeah. It's symbolic, yeah. ultimately. It's that, yeah, that, I, I think it's not just film. Boromir dying at that point. It's Frodo going off with, with Sam and, uh, Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli realizing they have no purpose left. So they yeah. just go off and help to try and save Merry and Pippin. Cause that's, yeah. that's all they can do now. I definitely like the, the film sort of ends is better because I mean just reading the book is like oh is that the end I thought that just sort of ends halfway through the scene really so yeah. it feels like the scene hasn't ended they're just doing it to, just to make it you know, just make, to make you buy the next part yeah but, I, I, I don't know what Tolkien was, was thinking at that because obviously he wrote it as one giant manuscript and which, must have made the decision look let's put the first break point here as opposed to one chapter into the next one well I, yeah I think part of the problem is his chaptering is not the best I think it would have been better as lots of shorter chapters, which could, might have mean that the, it ended, the, the first book ended even sooner if it did right. not have a sort of set number of chapters. Gotcha. Um, that does tie in, though, with the idea of him writing it as a, as a history or a mythology, because obviously history doesn't have chapters. It doesn't Things have climaxes. It yeah. close at, at yeah. convenient, dramatic points. Uh, in The Two Towers, Theoden is not literally possessed by Saruman. Instead, he is simply depressed and disillusioned by Wormtongue. And then, like Aragorn, when he comes out of his funk, he is not filled with self-doubt and regret. He's just kind of decisive and like, we're right into war. Yeah, I, I like the film better. <laughs> so it, gives, it sort of gives more of a justification to go to war, because you, you know, you're, you've been magicked by the wizard near you. And yeah. Was Theodred killed in the book? Uh, yeah, he, uh, he was, I think it was just, they just mentioned it at the Fords of Eyes and they don't do the whole just funeral there. bit. They don't do the funeral and they don't do, no parents should uh, have to bury their child. No. Oh. I think, uh, <laughs> all I think of that stuff that defines Fairden as a character. I think basically he dies while Fairden's all sort of quote unquote old and he, when, when he's sort of comes to his senses, he doesn't mention his son at all. <laughs> She's a, a very nice father figure. Well, once again, it's drama and uh, conflict and characterization, not history. The warg, is it warg or warg? Uh, Send out your warg riders. I'm always going to I'm <laughs> always going to defer to Christopher Lee. If anyone ever yeah. gets pronunciation right, it's going to be Chris Lee. He's, he reads the books every year, so he knows yes. what he's talking about, including and, the glossaries. Yes, <laughs> yeah. it's Gandalf, not Gandalf. This is certainly not Gandalf. Gandolf, the Warg ambush and Aragorn's subsequent fall and apparent death were again created for the film. I hate that bit. You hate that bit? Yep. Just the Warg ambush or the whole uh, falling to your death thing? Warg ambush is fine. Him falling to his death, he just adds a useless bit of drama. So he has to, oh, he falls off. Oh, no, he might be dead. Of course he's not. He's Aragorn. He has to survive because <laughs> he's Aragorn. Uh, uh, it's, I, I would imagine it's not so much to fool the audience as to show what will happen to uh, Legolas Gimli and the folks at Rohan I think when they believe that they, he has died. I think the only reason for it is so he can uh, come late and notice all the orc, all the Urukai marching towards uh, Helm's Deep. And bash that door open. Yeah. <laughs> That is an awesome scene. It is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I, I, it, it does add a bit of a layer to the um, uh, the crush on him that um, Eowyn has. 
Yeah, and it, it does that, add another thing of the, his, him and Arwen. She's mm. It emphasises how he, he's sort of wandering around lost in the wilderness as well, metaphorically. Which, again, yeah. Arwen being there in his mind's eye is kind of reinforcing her as his anchor point. Yeah, But yeah, this was stuff that they re-edited and, and incorporated the new Arwen stuff that was kind of not last minute added to the two towers, but it was not their initial intention. Yeah. <laughs> You're going, mm, we'll get to that in a bit. I just, I just, there was the, I'm more to that scene, but that's probably for the film rather than this. Um, the elves do not assist in the book, the besieged people of Rohan at Helm's Deep. Apparently they are, and this is how uh, Peter and Co. justify the reason they turn up, they are fighting other wars around, uh, Middle Earth, just not, they, they don't go to Helm's Deep. Now! Yeah, there's, there's three attacks on Lothlorien during the time, and then they go off to Mirkwood with Ferandrel and, uh, uh, destroy Dolgulder. In the original version of The Two Towers, which, remember, the original scripts for The Lord of the Rings were for two films where The Two Towers would actually be incorporated into the beginning and end of the, of the two parts. And in this version, Arwen comes to Helm's Deep with a contingent of elves to help out uh, Aragorn after consulting Galadriel. And there's actually still a picture that exists of Galadriel and Arwen, and, and they're having a bit of a chat. Yeah, there's a uh, in the extended uh, in the in the, the extra stuff on the end. There's there's film of her kicking down ladders on the walls of Helm's Deep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so bad. They decided against it because it made her kind of Xena warrior princess. Yeah, and um, actually the bit where uh, Aragorn and Gimli get pulled up by Legolas in the original that that the, them being pulled up they were being pulled up by Arwen at that point. They actually filmed that footage and so they swapped that out for Legolas. And in fact, the whole reason that they, the elves turn up uh, and they have um, uh, Haldir do it instead of her is just so that they can explain why there are elves in the background at Elm's Deep. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I'm so glad they do not have Arwen. She's, I mean, she's supposed to be separate from Arya. That's the point. I mean, he's supposed to go off to fight yeah. to, so he can marry her, not just, oh, there she is. I quite like the elves being there. A, because I like elves. B, because it's got Haldir, who's my favourite character. Seriously, um, I, yeah. <laughs> we met a lot of people at the Fellowship Festival who love like really random characters. They're like, you know, my favorite character, Figwit. It's like, seriously? <laughs> um, uh, why is Haldir your favorite character? Because he, I don't, he, I don't know. <laughs> of really. all the characters actually given hours of screen um, time, you go for Haldir. The problem is, um, in the films, Legolas is irritating. Yes, that uh, is very yes. true. I don't think that immediately <laughs> justifies why Haldir is the best. Because um, he's, um, he's got the cool line that... Um, the dwarf oh, breathes so loud we can yeah, see him in the... Yeah, I like that. I actually... Uh, with Craig Parker uh, was one of the presenters of the, the uh, first Fellowship Festival and um, I, I sort of ran into the mic when, when he was on stage asking, what was that line I did? And sort of breathed it into the mic and the entire audience went, ooh, that was quite good. <laughs> So yeah, he's, he's a I, lovely chap, very I, funny as well. I like that line. I just, I think he's, cause he's a normal elf, rather than everyone else's heroes. Yeah. And that, and... I just, I, but he really like only it. gets like three lines. He gets, oh no, he gets far more in the extended editions. Oh, of course, right. So that's, I mean, that helps. <laughs> I just know, I, I mean, just reading the books and watching the films when I was younger, that was the, the character I liked. As I oh, he's, he's, he's in the, the book a bit more, isn't he? It's a, I think he only actually appears in that, in Lothlorien, doesn't he? Yeah, he's, um, 
Because, of course, he wasn't at Helm's Deep and he didn't die at Helm's Deep. No, I said it like that. Paul Shotton really hated the uh, Boromir death in the Fellowship. He wasn't all that fussed with Fellowship. He did like the Two Towers, but he couldn't give a stuff when Haldir got killed. Yeah. It's like, it's just the same thing again. I quite like the death of Boromir because I don't like Sean Bean. Um... Yeah, I really like Sean Bean and I love the death of Boromir. Yeah, it's just um, sharp. <laughs> I've seen too many adverts for it. It just, it just looks awful. It just looks horrible. Um, um, but yeah, I, the point I like the elves at Helmsley because Helmsley, the, the chapter of Helmsley in the book is has no action in it whatsoever. Yeah, it's a lot and, of build up. Yeah, there's there's sort of all these orcs to say, and then there's this small band of men that apparently survive against all the odds. Yeah, and it's like, well, why? Um, I'm not sure he really. Is it? I'm not sure he really understands war. Dude was in at least one. Yeah, I don't... I don't know um, how you can write war knowing how many men will get cut to pieces against those odds. Yeah, I... And have it be effectively blown. Yeah, he just... He can't write action well in in sort of all of the books. It's a start sign. But he's not expected to because back in those days there wasn't action in books. It's only really been action in books because it's been predicated by film. It's not what he was um, what he was trying to do, though. As we've as we've said several times, he's writing it from a a historian's perspective. Yeah. A historian does not tell you about the poor guy who bled to death with a snapped off <laughs> blade in his belly in the middle of the field while everyone else was off down. They're not talking about the, the individual victory. axe blows. Exactly, mm-hmm. but that's that's one of the reasons why I love the film is because it that's what it gives you is is the people and mm. the the individuals who were involved with it. Um, and it makes it more real, but I suppose in, in context of the, the, uh, the reality in terms of the world that Tolkien had created. If it was just the film and there was no mythological background that went with it, I don't know if it would have had quite the impact on it on me that it did. Mm, of course. As well as um, uh, compiling exhaustive amounts of history for the actual uh, book he was writing, he was trying to craft uh, mythology for England because it, it, we, we don't have one. We have assembled King bits Arthur. and bobs. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the only thing I will say to that. We do. Uh, we actually saw them talking about this, and I can't. they mentioned the closest thing being King Arthur, but is that from Celtic mythology? No, King Arthur was British. He was. He was. Uh, what is British? Well, he wasn't. He wasn't king of the entirety of England, but he was king of a, a number of, of groups of people in. Yeah, but what, when Britain was full of Saxons, Celts, and Picts. He yeah. Was, uh, Who he were the been. Brits in this particular scenario? Uh, Saxons. Saxons were, from where? Uh, well, yeah, but the Danish countries. <laughs> well, from Saxony, but they've lived in Britain. It wasn't called Britain then, but um, <laughs> long enough to be British. And yeah. when you and get attacked also, by invaders, you become uh, the home team. Back. Yeah, basically. So he was British. If that's all. Gotcha. Yeah, Br- Britain doesn't seem to so much get invaded as we just invite people to move in. <laughs> and it's it, it's happened repeatedly through British history. Uh, but I mean, for, for for Tolkien to have this argument that he was trying to create a mythology for for um, a people that didn't really seem to have one, and then steal quite so much as he did from Irish mythology and there's Norse a mythology. hell of a lot of Beowulf in there as well, yeah, especially but, in Rohan. But essentially, that's what the British people are. We are a a 
melting pot mixed bag collective made up from various different peoples yeah. it makes sense that our mythology should be as well yeah. so I do yeah. kind of like that idea of, a, of having a framework for it just have um, one quick point for Helm's Deep um, in the book it specifically doesn't mention rain which is a problem for the film because uh, it pulls in rain it, well, it says it says there's lightning but it doesn't say there's rain um, and bows don't work in the rain Ah, oh, of course you're an archer, aren't you? Yeah, because it's like if you've heard they were magic bows. Uh, <laughs> they were uh, made by the elves. They had rain know. repelling spells. Yeah, I need I need to. Do, I'm going to do research for the Galadriel gives Aragorn a special new scabbard that means <laughs> that when you pull out your blade, it's not going to get tarnished. Well, that's it. The swords are okay. Oh, it's just bows. Um, so if you've heard the phrase "keep it under your hat," that was from medieval longbowmen for their strings. But, yeah, if it started to rain, they have to oh, take right. off the strings, and that's why crossbows. Well, technically more powerful, and anyone can use them. Once it rains, they're just a bit of wood. Can we say a wizard did it? Um, <laughs> no, I, I need to check for the Two Towers podcast. I need to check. Lothlorien bows are made of uh, hair, mm-hmm. and that may be okay for the rain. I need to check that. Like uh, and, yeah, it's supposed to be uh, El- the Lothlorien supposed to be Gladrius hair, and the the Rohirrim it could be uh, horse hair. Possibly. Which I need to check what. Right. I need to Seems check what. likely that they would use horses. Yeah, I need to we're check. getting hugely pedantic <laughs> about. I need, to, I need to check <laughs> what the uh, Mongol archers use because they're basically part of the mix that the Rohirrim are. So basically, the... if um, you're attacking a force that is entirely based, uh, basing their strength on archery, and it starts raining, you may as well just walk in there with pointy sticks and poke them all to death. It's scotched in this country. You can't do anything. You can stab me with arrows if you want. That's basically it. surprising that the uh, English army did so well in medieval times when it rains in France and England quite a lot. Surely they would have had, like, bowmasters there saying, um, interjection. Well, I I think that's a... I think just because it looks cooler. They probably got got told it just looks cooler. So when Tolkien was like, and there's there's thunder, but I'm not going to mention rain (laughs) because it sounds cooler. Yeah, he just says there's thunder and lightning, but he just doesn't mention rain. Um, I think that's probably because, I mean, in the um, quite a lot of... I mean, I talking about bowmasters, quite a lot of fantasy does not have bowmasters because loads of people have the arrow on the wrong side of the bow. Um, okay. So if you're right-handed, you hold the bow with your left hand, draw with your right, and the arrow's on the left-hand side of the bow. Cause that's Did they get it right in the Avengers? Uh, I, no, well, uh, no, at all. No, there, there was a, a, quite a big piece I wrote completely lambasting <laughs> his technique. And you know he has those two uh, braces on his hat on his arm. Yep, it makes it look very cool. But you've only got two if you're a really bad shot and you keep hitting your uh, <laughs> arm with the string. <laughs> if you're supposed to be that cool with a bow, you should not have any brace whatsoever because you're not doing it wrong hitting yourself. Yeah, um, good point. He would uh, destroy his wrist because he was doing it wrong, and it would just give carpal tunnel very quickly. All oh, right. So moving swiftly on. <laughs> Uh, Faramir is, in the book, friendly and accommodating. He assists and guides Frodo and Sam and has no major issues with his father. He is also very able to easily resist the ring. In other words, dull. I like him better in the book, though, because um, as far as I have in the film, he just seems like he's just a, a weaker version of Boromir. He doesn't have any defining characteristics. Wow. Oh, if Tony Atkins is listening, he's going to be grinding to see Faramir might be one of his favourite characters. Except, except he's, I mean, in the film he's better with a bow, and that's it. But in the book he is... Yeah, that is literally yeah. the only difference. Yeah, but in the in the book he is sort of physically weaker, but um, 
sort of mentally stronger. He can resist the rings. He knows that it's not what's best for Gondor. Where Boromir is the old elder son, so he strapping lad, but has no yeah, actual uh, well, he he mental stance. Yeah, he wants to do what's best for, but um, overlooks the problems when Faramir, yeah. cause he's because he's not the older son, he can just. Uh, but in the film, he's just like, oh, I have to do this because my dad will like me now. That's, um, that's, a, that's a gross oversimplification. <laughs> also, Faramir represents uh, an important obstacle for Frodo and Sam here because they removed Shelob. If he just met them and sent them merrily on their way, they have nothing to go up against in Two Towers. Um, the, also, uh, the fact that he's... I think his exact quote on the ring is, I would not pick up that thing if it lay by the wayside, which takes all of those hours that you've spent showing this thing as being the most infernal, powerful artifact known to humankind, and just goes, you know what, some people just immune to it. You know, it's not well, actually all that powerful. And it no, completely I mean... dispenses with the ring. Well, yeah, but it's like Elrond and Gandalf would, would not touch it. Because they know what would happen. And, I mean, I think Points Faramir is supposed to be more bookish, so he may have read... Well, I mean, that's... that's Because he's the younger son, it seems a bit more intelligent than Boromir. Couldn't he's they say, patient. look, could you come with us? Because we really need someone who has... No, the ring has no influence on it. I, yeah, that's the whole plot problem, is that Faramir probably should have gone with them. Yeah. Um, seems like it'd be if, handy in a fight. Especially if... I mean, Gandalf has heard about this, the problems of Kirifungo, and... Faramir should have heard about those if he's traipsing around Ithilien all the time. Yeah. But problems with Kidath. <laughs> it's got a witch king in it. <laughs> oh, I've, well, I don't, yeah. There goes the neighborhood. <laughs> right. Um, the giant spies of it. So yeah, I mean, Faramir is one of the, the, the key uh, antagonists in, in the two towers. You, you know, obviously he, as he turns out to be a hero, it seems, um, an interesting turnabout. But uh, we'll talk about this during the actual films, but he's one of my absolute favorite characters in terms of how they've transformed a really kind of just like nice, affable, nothing character into someone really complicated. I really like the way Faramir is portrayed. Minas Morgul, The Winding Stair, and Frodo and Sam's confrontation with Shelob are, as I said, all at the end of the Two Towers book, but move to the beginning, middle of uh, The Return of the King. Uh, this is mainly to give them something to do because Return of the King, their half starts when Sam rescues Frodo. And if you remember in the film, there's really not much between them and Mount Doom. There's a lot, a lot of trudging through an endless wasteland. Uh, but then a lot of their, their part of the book is actually the epilogue and the scouring of the Shire. Yeah, they have the many, like many two, endings. They have like two proper chapters and the yeah. rest of it is uh, when they meet up again. So basically, if they'd reduced Faramir, moved Shelob to the end of the Two Towers, and then included the scouring of the Shire, it would have been more in line with the book. Yeah. I think, though, we we talked about this before, Alex, the, anything that involves reordering or, um, you know, events being more or less the same as in the book, but just changed around in terms of pacing and, and um, narrative structure, I think... Even if I were more of a fan of the book than I am, I would be willing to overlook those things because they're making a film, ultimately. They're and serving it's, it's completely different ones. Exactly. It's got to have um, a, a, a pacing and a, um, 
a beat to it that people can follow for the duration of the film and, and be, you know, be able to sustain certain emotions for a certain length of time and then you have your downtime from that and then it goes back up again, etc. With a book, you're taking it entirely your own speed. You, you, you know, you choose the pacing when you're reading, basically, but a director of a film doesn't have that luxury of being able to just put all the material out there and say, you know what, you decide how, how you want to absorb this. They've got to control it in some way. And I, I think he, the, the way it was put together, I think Jackson did a fantastic job of making it, bringing it to life and getting giving it that heartbeat that, that the book doesn't really have unless the reader chooses to give it to it. Just to, for you folks at home to picture this, imagine the two towers halfway through, say an hour and a half in, Helm's Deep is finished, and they are at Orthanc talking to Saruman, and it's like, right, he has no power here anymore, and that's it. That's then cuts to Frodo and Sam meeting Gollum for the first time, and then all of that stuff up to and including Shelob, and then Frodo getting taken away by those orcs, that is then the end of the book of the two towers. It would be a completely different film experience. It might not actually be all that bad. I'd actually like to see someone recut the entire trilogy to make it as close to the uh, uh, books as possible. That'd be interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't want to see that. I don't like how the books are presented. For <laughs> it wouldn't be better. But it'd be interesting. <laughs> I would also similarly like to see the original version of the two towers where Arwen plays Xena warrior princess and comes to Helm's Deep. That would be yeah. interesting. Wouldn't be better, but I'd like maybe to see it. Two, oh, so I'd say maybe 10th ten, ten, ten year anniversary would pass that. So yep. 11th year anniversary. 20th year anniversary. It would be nice if, if they could maybe include some like, of the footage on a later Blu-ray because it's got to be somewhere. Yeah they've, yeah, they've just got that. And they've spoken of effect. blooper reels as well. I'd love to see them. Yeah. The rift driven between Sam and Frodo by Gollum at the beginning middle of The Return of the King is not in the books. They remain firm companions throughout. It's It's got to come down to threat and anxiety and, and the drama between these two major characters. And if they're just close all the time, it, there's less of an arc, but it has to be something where there is true danger presented between them and Sam has to push through it. And I think... Sam really benefits as a character from the uh, changes that they had there. And the, when he comes through for Frodo, uh, when he says, get away from him, you filth, and you just, yes! He might as well be in a power loader at that point. Yeah, no, I think they, um, I don't know if they're aware that the, an- the animation of a spider and just having a, a, a giant CGI creature at that time was still, you know, Tennis still look a stick. Yeah, because still look a bit dodgy. So they wanted to increase the tension, which, which means they have to get rid of Sam somehow. Just have Frodo going through the the creepy dark uh, cave by himself, um, and they've got a very good line by Gollum there. Yeah, the oh, I can't wait to caught in a web. Charles defense. How to little fly? Why does it cry? Caught in a web, soon there be eaten. Yes, that's really crazy when you do that. <laughs> Yeah, that bit. Um, I think they want wanted to increase the, the tension and the, the uh, just make it more of a you know a horror film yeah. style. Yeah, it's kind of, or a monster movie. Yeah, yeah, monster and uh, get Kate Blanchett in again. Uh, oh yeah, that small scene. Yeah, we'll talk about that when we do the uh, Return of the King shows. Uh, Faramir did not go on a suicide run 
to Osgiliath in the books, but was injured during a different skirmish. Den- yes, the problem is they took out the wall of uh, the, the wall of uh, encircling the Pelagophilus, which I think he gets attacked, he gets injured at sort of defending the wall there, yeah. and they take that out there to do something else. <laughs> they actually include the wall, don't they? In um, uh, the back, the Bass Return of the King. I remember because it looked yeah, like Bar Singh yeah. say. Yeah, it's a bit weird. They do, they sort of do in the films as well. They have um, sort of the the harbour that um, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli turn up at. I think it's supposed to be sort of like a harbour as part of the wall. But I assume the implication is the rest of the wall's fallen down, right? And they didn't rebuild it as they did in the books. Mm. Um, so otherwise, it looks a bit weird. They've got a massive harbour so far out with no defence whatsoever similarly Denethor is a far less vindictive character he's more uh, it's, it says in on Wikipedia that he's more tragic in the book I think he still annoyed the hell out of me and I was like <laughs> why are you doing this but in the film he's utterly detestable but at the same time you can see that he's a pitiable and wretched character yeah I think it's just he's because he's used the Palantir so much his mind has been completely twisted by Sauron he just it's being I mean the Palantir doesn't always tell the truth but you can obviously manipulate that to look look far worse than it is and he's, his mind has just gone because he thinks he knows what's going to happen but and it looks like it is actually going to happen but obviously things don't in the end well the suicide run it serves two purposes in terms of showing the sacrifice of young men being forced out to war by generals in the in the rear lines yeah and, that that, yeah. that is actually I, I don't think Tolkien would have wrote that specific that does yeah seem like a, a charge from a trench yeah um, it's allegorical and he didn't like yeah. allegory he liked applicability uh, applicability yeah, yeah. He didn't like things to literally mean one thing. He liked them to be applicable to various things throughout time. Yeah. The other thing is, of course, that it ties in very specifically with the new character growth between Denethor and Faramir and their interactions. But we'll talk about that during the Return of the King show. Uh, far less focus is given to Eowyn in the books, her infatuation with Aragorn and her relationship with Theoden. Instead, Eomer plays a more prominent role in both Helm's Deep and the Battle of Pelennor Fields. Yeah. Yeah, because he's not, he's not sent off yeah. in disgrace and has, which, I mean, it makes him far more dramatic and cool in the film. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, in the book it's just, oh, there's just these men that got scattered and they run down the hill. <laughs> it's not dramatic as So you mean the dramatic at the end of the two towers? Yeah. Aomer is yet another barrel-chested heroic chap of which Tolkien wrote many, many, many with very little characterization to any of them. They're all just sort of figureheads in a war. But this is a key female figure to, with, with so many things going on that they've sort of focused mainly on her relationship with Thad. And, and uh, Aomer is there but he's kind of the sort of this is what she could have been, uh, if not capable of, but entitled to be if she were a man. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, she's got more interaction because they changed Theoden to actually be old. You know, yeah. he actually turned old, so she has to look after him because that's sort of her place in that, that time period. Yeah. So then she doesn't get to do, I mean, in the book, she's just there. I mean, I mean, he's, he's not, it's just supposed to be depressed more than which she wouldn't be waiting on him like that really as much, and she probably would have done more. But then in the book, she does sort of take over the defence of the kingdom. She, she's sort of sent she's sent off with all the women and children and old people to to keep the sort of line of the Rohirrim alive. 
So she's given a very important task. The speech, the wonderful, wonderful speech that Theoden gives to uh, Eowyn at the end of Return of the King when he dies, is actually delivered to Eomer. Once again, battle yeah. chested, no personality check. And the speech he, he gives to the Rohirrim just before they charge is so much better in the film. Yeah. It's just basic, um, he just basically goes ride now over and over again. Ride now, ride now, ride now. <laughs> in the book. And it's, um, the, yeah, the, 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 it's just a much more dramatic scene in the, the, the film. Cause it, I just, it's just, basically the lacking point is drama in, I, I, it's, as you said, both said it's because they're just trying to write it as a historical, uh, account rather than but, but at the same time, now is your time to go a bit uh, know, Beowulf, the, Beowulf and have a, yeah, no, his I eyes just, flashed fire and he spoke. <laughs> and as I he just, spoke, the words came forth from his mouth like thought, lightning bolts. I just thought that, that I, was, I was saying that the Bayer Tapestry is a historical account, but that's got conflicts and it shows you know what happened, but in a in a dramatic way rather than a, 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 I suppose it's pictures rather than text but you can easily do that in text the world's first action scene actually i think that there was sort of like blokes hunting mammoths yeah aragorn's reinforcements in the book as in when he jumps off the boats uh from the corsair ships are gondorians and the dunedain rangers rather than an immortal army of the dead who cannot be killed and clear out the uh, city of orcs also in the book i could be wrong about this the orcs never fully enter the city of minas tirith and they actually do manage to defend it is that right uh, so yeah, they don't I, require clearing out yeah they just break down the gate and that's it right so they break um, down the gate and that's it yeah i think they, they, they break down the... around outside and then the rohirrim turn up well they break down the gate the what are we gonna do now with, I mean, they do mention Grond, the uh, battle yeah. ram. That's there. Yeah, they, they break down the gate. The Witch King goes in on horseback. It's, they don't A lot really of people got it. very upset about the uh, confrontation between he and Gandalf. Yeah, I, I, Gandalf. Um, um, yeah, do you face down Gandalf and there's a chicken and he gets scared. There's a chicken and he gets scared? Yeah, the, the chicken, uh, there's a, a cockfrog that crows, and then you, and then he sort of runs away, then he sort of runs away, and then there's the, the horns of Rohan, and it's like, he could kill Gandalf. But there was a chicken. Gandalf. Yeah, I don't know. It's the, the, the point of it is not very clear in the book. Is it's that, a that, historical <laughs> epic. I'm struggling to see what the relevance of the chicken is. Um, it's, it's, uh, the tide has turned somehow. They don't actually really explain how the tide has turned in the, the, um, Clouds of Sauron are being blown away, uh, which. No man may kill me! <laughs> I am no man! <laughs> <laughs> which, um, blows the clouds away so that the dawn can rise and the, the cockerel can crow. Except the fact that the cockerels do not crow at the dawn, they <laughs> cockerels crow whenever the hell they like. Yes. As I've been a holiday to lots of farms, they just very irritating. It's just, I think it's just supposed to be that somehow they don't, you don't explain how. Uh, the tides, well, the, the, the air has changed and, uh, Sauron's dark cloud that he sent over has, is being blown away so it brings light through. And that sends the, uh, ships, the Corsair ships up the Andorin quickly. Right. Um, but they never explain why that happens. Right. And the only logical thing I can think they of. They being, is, uh, Tolkien. Yeah, oh yeah, Tolkien. I, I, because it's, Blowing the right way, the only thing I can think of is being blown by from the Undying Land somehow. 
because uh-huh. it's blowing from uh, the west. That's inferred rather than... In, uh, yeah, they don't say that. that that's the, I'm only inferring that because it's coming from the right direction. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, either way, the, uh, the diehard talking fans got out of their minds with anger about the fact that the Army of the Dead were actually the yep. backup uh, on Aragorn's part because... They shouldn't have been. Whereas, I believe in the book, is it uh, implied that they helped Aragorn to clear out another city, and thus he got reinforcements from there by getting the other Gondorians to leave that struggle? Uh, yeah, they um, clear out... I can't remember what minute. Quick look at my map. But as Gimli says, very useful in a fight. Wouldn't Aragorn say, no, you know, we've got a real city to clear. Uh, yeah, I think they clear out um, Pelagir, which is to the south. And um, then as soon as that happens, he says, oh, you, it's fine. You can go now. But then we wouldn't taking... have got that awesome leaping off the ship. And... No, I don't. I don't. I don't know. It's, apparently, yeah, the, the, just the him, a few Doomsday Rangers, and a few Gondorans and Elders and Earl here is enough to fight. Enough off, to uh, yeah, <laughs> to fight all the orcs that are there. Um, rather than yeah, this spectral warrior troop. Well, ultimately, again, it comes down to numbers. Tolkien has presented us with, I think, it's like two hundred thousand. I think the the first lot was uh, the Uruks at Helm's Deep are like between, is it 20,000? I think it's 10, it's 10,000 in the film, I can't remember what it is. Okay, well this is 200,000, there is numbers that dwarf what they have available at Minas Tirith. Those numbers need to be dealt with by something that can actually manage it, and unfortunately it takes the deus ex machina of this spectral army. Yeah, because you can't yeah. pull out these numbers and then go. And then the day was saved by about twenty Dunedain Rangers and sixty <laughs> Gondorians, who each fought yeah. with the strength of a thousand men. Yeah, they don't actually explain where all these rangers come from. Cause they're supposed to be. I mean, there's basically all they do is protect. Again, the you Shire. say they. Oh, Tolkien. Tolkien. I, I, <laughs> uh, it's important because there is a they when it comes yeah, to the film, yeah. but it was just Tolkien writing it um, himself. Uh, yeah, they don't, that's not explained well. Um, Neither really has a, ho- a, a truly I, realistic outcome. There is, and there is one line that says that sort of Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, Elrond, and Elrond here are worth like a thousand troops. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. But um, that's still only what five thousand. It's figurative. <laughs> yeah. As well, they're not literally able to take out a thousand men without sustaining no. a single injury. Yeah, I think if Gimli got mobbed by a thousand orcs, he'd probably go down quite. <laughs> fast. Twenty-one, twenty-two. Yeah, um, Legolas would only have what, about twenty-four arrows as a as a standard. Yeah, that's true. They have to start pulling them out, and then he's got. Then he's, then he's got, got, he's a, got a, on string. Then he's got a a knife. He doesn't have two knives in the. Yeah, he's got oh, yeah, good point. Yeah, he's supposed to have one little white knife, but they gave him two because it looks totally badass. Yeah. At Mount Doom, when Gollum gets the ring back, he slips and falls over backwards into the lava, rather than he and Frodo going over together in a struggle. Okay, I said this to Sharon. There's a little character you may have heard of named Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> he slips and falls over backwards, but usually not in a way that 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 the entire the entire saga hinges upon this one event. Yeah. Symbolically, it's Frodo and Gollum struggling with this ring that they are yeah, both now complete slaves to. Yeah, because if it's a Frodo and, and Gollum going, you could imply that Frodo is saying, you know, if he, if I don't have, if I can't have it, neither, neither of us can. Yeah. Or so just think, over. we've got, you know, or, this is the only way. Actually, this is the only way. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, otherwise it's just, oh, I slipped. In the, uh, one of the original ideas that Frodo actually pushed Gollum, but that's actually a horrible idea. Yeah. Do that. Doesn't work with Frodo's character, but. 
but so yeah, it's uh, actually I think well, that, well executed in the. Uh, I thought, uh, that that actually reminds me of a whole plot problem with the whole thing. Why doesn't um, Elrond in the end of the last lines? Why doesn't Elrond just throw the ring in? Or just at least push um, uh, Ellen, uh, Isildur I've in. I've always thought about that. I think it's just the fact that he... Just, that, I mean, uh, he blames Isildur for being weak and being f- f- prey to the ring, but he didn't want to step in. No, yeah, he's... He's, he's, him he's blaming no, 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 himself. No, no, no. Blaming himself for being weak enough not to do the morally horrible thing of pushing yeah. some, you know, your friend in. Murdering but still, you're going to save mili- you know, thousands of people if you do it. And, Millions. Yeah, and... Yeah, that, that's fine. If they do that, then the books cannot be written. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> but um, so the the actual scene where he's you know casted into the flames was that in the book uh, in flashback? Uh, yeah, who is what Gollum? Uh, no, uh, uh, cast into the flames to a silver. Uh, you no, know. I don't no think. Idea. <laughs> I don't think. I don't remember. I don't think the last dance is meant is mentioned. It's just mentioned that. Uh, Kilgallad and Elrond will go. Uh, they're right, both killed. No Isildur, I would imagine this would be mentioned at the Council of Elrond. Yeah, I think it's just that they just say Isildur cuts off the ring and then takes it. There's not any mention. There's no mention of them going to the to, them going to up try to, and destroy to try and destroy it. And, yeah, but yeah. that I mean, what if, if that is actually what happened? Why didn't Elrond think of that? <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah, you should destroy that really powerful ring that can find all our elvish rings and destroy them. Um, Elrond has no one to blame but himself in this case. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he's was, good at projecting. I suppose he was younger then, and okay, like, I don't actually know. It's very not very clear what position he was. He was supposed to, you know, he's Gilgalad's standard bearer. But I think he just got mean? promoted when Gilgalad got murdered. Yeah. <laughs> when the hobbits get back to the Shire in the book. It is overrun by Saruman's industrialization, and the heroes rally a hobbit rebellion using the skills they've learned throughout the books uh, until eventually the wizard is killed by Wormtongue. He is, at this point, he's called Sharky, or Saruman of Many Colours, and he gets stabbed in the back, much like he does in the scenario uh, that was placed at the beginning. Of, oh, he doesn't get stabbed in the back? No, his uh, throat's cut. Oh, his throat's? Yes, no, you're right. Yep. His throat's cut, but that's an absolute I don't, I don't know how you thing. Do that you can't running. put that on a uh, PG-13. I also don't know how you do that running after him. He runs after him, then cuts through. I don't quite know how you do that. Yeah. Stabbing in the back makes more sense. What was really frightening during that scene is that Christopher Lee uh, used to be a soldier, and he actually is very aware of what happens when a man is stabbed and uh, in the back, and how quietly and how agonisingly he dies. So that performance was uh, was from memory. Yeah, was, they cut out, <laughs> and yeah, they cut out. I really wish they'd left that in the attack theatrical one. And I'm very glad that he actually has gotten over the. Uh, he was very angry about that. Got, <laughs> got over that enough to actually be in the Hobbit. Yeah. Yeah, they couldn't make the whole bit without him, really. Well, they could. He's not in it. Well, they could, but... Doing it but, without him, it seems like a missed opportunity. Well, firstly, it's a bit of a, yeah, if you don't, if you don't like what we do, you can't be in any more films. And as they have, you know, obviously they, they want to make it a bigger film. They yeah. did that from the, they want to do that from the start. So um, they have to have him in, if they can have anything about the White Council. And, yeah. I suppose that the only thing they could do is go the the wizard Saruman who is hiding in his tower in Orthanc and will come out. He, he yeah. indicates with a glove puppet what he wants <laughs> to do. Well, first off, actually, yeah, the, the scouring of the Shire. Yeah. There's two major reasons why they didn't do this. One, it doesn't really do anything. 
it is allegorical, and again, that's something that Tolkien didn't like, of um, the men returning home from war in 1940 to find Britain that they remembered now industrialised. It sort of takes away that innocence of the Shire and, and takes away that pocket of it. Um, but the other thing is that it adds an extra 40 minutes worth of ending to a film that people mention whenever they're criticising it that it has about six endings. <laughs> yeah, I I quite like it in the book because it is it does show important points like yeah war isn't just where the war is happening it's the entire world and the hobbits can fight if they need to yeah uh and you know it it does sort of seem like um through the 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 books that mary and pippin are being they are learning stuff to use somewhere and in the films they just don't do it yeah in in the books in the films they don't do it well they they do stuff but mary helps kill the witch king yeah okay pippin doesn't do anything um (laughs) What do you want him to do? <laughs> Leader rebellion. He says Faramir, but um, in, again, no, he book, does say Faramir. He in the know. book, they they basically they rescue the Shire. Frodo and Sam, are, yeah. they, 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 that's not what they were trained to do. And so it's, it's Merry and Pippin's on, finally coming to the point where they, they, yeah, they become they are they become heroes the, amongst the hobbits. Yeah. yeah, but I think ultimately they, they are, they've I, been they've been heroic enough for everyone else watching what they've been doing. Well, yeah, it's just like in the book that. Everywhere else, it's all Frodo and Sam are the heroes because they destroy the ring. In in the Shire, it is like, Mary and Pippin become the famous ones because they they save the Shire, yes. which I quite like. Um, but yeah, it, it had no place in the film really because it was long enough, and they, they they included it in the Mirror of Galadriel, which was enough briefly as a possible future. And then obviously in the film, Sam doesn't get the box of soil of Lothlorien soil and the Malon yeah. tree bulb, whatever it's like, you know, seed. <laughs> basically just to use when that happens. Right. So sort of the cube branch Galatrials. <laughs> <sighs> okay, so yeah, the the main reason they cut it out was for pacing, because Return of the King was the longest of all the films, and it's incredibly long, and adding many, many extra minutes onto the end would have pushed most audiences. Yeah. And also, yeah, financially speaking, even if they had made it four and a half hours long, um, you can't get as many showings in per day if it is. Yeah. So if you want to look at it purely for money, but more specifically, it, it's it wasn't hugely required in terms of everything else. The, so the, the Shire is kept basically as this wonderful innocent place where everyone just sort of makes comments about the rest of the world but doesn't really know anything about them. Yeah. So that's it. Before we go on to the other films, um, we've gone for an hour and 37 minutes already, and we aren't even into the rest of the depictions. Uh, but that's good. I mean, we've really talked about the books, and I really wanted to get this sort of out of the way now so that we could focus on the films later rather than constantly going back to the books. We don't yeah. now need to talk about the books too much. Um, there are two things that I've always wanted to address. One, why didn't the uh, the second that they had the Council of L1, they get the eagles to come in and then fly the ring straight to Mount Doom? Which is a lot something that a lot of people ask. Explain why, Chris. <laughs> um, because that's the easy way, and that leads to the dark side. That's also no story. The the two main reasons given: one is that the eagles are impartial and don't care, which is a terrible way of. of and that's terrible answer because they, they it's the they save Gandalf every like every book. Yeah. Almost. <laughs> Once those orcs take control of the surface, they will take control of you. You must see it. But more specifically. Uh, Sauron has air support 
it's not something people really go into, but when the eagles get close to uh, Baradur and the eye spots them, because it's effectively a giant lighthouse spotlight, uh, then out come the fell beasts, out come the ring wraiths, or if not ring wraiths at that point, because they were riding around on horses at the time, then creatures of some insane description who can ride fell beasts come out, snatch the eagles out of the air from where they are seen from miles away, no matter how fast they're flying, Take the ring, Sauron's got the ring. End of story. Yeah, and in the books it implies, or implies there are not very many great eagles left. Um, That's a... You only need unlike, one, for uh, goodness sake. Unlike some of the animated films we're talking about. Yeah, there's loads, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, frankly, yeah, just one would have been great, and they could have made a last-ditch attempt, but the, pro- the, the whole point of it is that it's got to be a stealth mission. It's the yeah. one thing he's well, not yeah. expecting. Yeah, as I said, you yeah, could send an army, but that'll get... Uh, noticed if you send an eagle that's going to get more noticed yeah because it's an eagle (laughs) he's going to spot things in the air more than on the ground yeah they seem to only live around the misty mountains at this time Uh, and the other thing is what Randall said in Clerks 2 those movies are about people walking which is one of the stupidest things I've (laughs) ever heard. And I know Kevin Smith knows that's not true, but the problem is that idiots get behind it as a way to troll fans of these films. One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. Oh, Jesus. One ring to bring them all. And in the darkness, bind them. Yes, suit! How many times? Well, um, three for fellowship, two for towers. Four for return. Five for return. Dude. All right, look. There's only one return, okay? And it ain't of the king, it's of the Jedi. Oh, Star Wars geek. (laughs) Oh, I'm the geek? Look at you two whipping out your preciouses. You'll have to excuse him. He's not down with the trilogy. You know what? Maybe we should start calling your friend Padme, because he loves Mannequin Skywalker so much, right? Uh, Danger, danger. My name is Anakin. My acting is ruining saga <laughs> yeah you're crazy jar jar oh i'm crazy those fucking hobbit movies were boring as hell all it was was a bunch of people walking three movies of people walking to a fucking volcano you know what i've had enough of you your simplistic analysis of the trilogy aside the lord of the rings was a massive achievement that even the academy recognized when they gave peter jackson the best directing oscar an award your little friend george toy boy lucas has never and we'll never win. Bones. Oh, sick burn. Let me tell you something. If Peter Jackson really wanted to blow me away with those Rings movies, he would have ended the third one on the logical closure point, not the 25 endings that followed. What's the logical closure point? Yeah, friend, enlighten us. When Frito wakes up from his little coma or whatever and the little hobbits are jumping up and down on his bed and Sam leans in the doorway and gives him that very gay look. Not the rings, Randall. Say what you will about Jesus, but leave the rings out of this. I'm going to kick your ass back to the Shire. I swear... (laughs) (laughs) I made fun of Lord of the Rings so hard it made some super geek puke all over the counter. I'm not even going to address it. I am (laughs) not even going to address it. The the next, what, eight, seven and a half episodes where we talk for, what, 20-odd hours about these films suggest otherwise... I mean, you could say that. You could say that about every single film. Yeah, it's just, it's just about just about walking, flying, or or riding. It, it says far less about the film, more about the person making that boneheaded statement. Yeah, because I mean, Star Wars is just flying between star systems. Well, it's yeah. it's films about the scrapes of of two crazy droids. <laughs> Citizen Kane's film about a sledge.
Right, now we're going to talk about the three animated films, starting with The Hobbit 77, which from now on we'll refer to as The Hobbit 77 to differentiate it from any of The Hobbit films. Uh, Rankin Bass, the now defunct studio behind The Year Without Santa Claus, The Flight of Dragons, The Last Unicorn, and Thundercats, in collaboration with Japanese studio Topcraft, who went on to become Studio Ghibli, produced a made-for-TV special based somewhat faithfully on The Hobbit. <laughs> now, I know you didn't like this, Chris. Yep. What there were is, your problems with this? Um, everything. Okay. It's a very, very sweet, very, very, you know, saccharine, round, you know, syrupy kind of Hobbit's eye view of the world. Somehow, they managed to make the songs worse. <laughs> I did not know that was possible after any, especially specifically the um, greatest adventure song. The greatest <laughs> adventure. Right, I'm going to play a bit for, for you folks now. The greatest adventure is what lies ahead. Today and tomorrow are yet to be said. The chances, the changes are all yours to make. The mold of your life is in your hands to break. The greatest adventure is there if you're bold. Let go of the mold that life makes you whole. Measure the meaning can make you delay. Time you stop thinking and wasting the day. The man who's a dreamer and never takes leave, who thinks of a world that is just make believe, will never know passion, will never know pain, who sits by the window. Uh, and uh, anyone who's a fan of South Park will, of course, immediately recognise that as the Lemmy Winks song, which yeah. that entire episode is based on the Rankin Bass shows. A great adventure is waiting for you ahead. Hurry onward, Lemmy Winks, or you will soon be dead. The journey before you may be long and filled with woe, but you must escape the gay man's ass so your tale can be told. Lemmy Winks. I am the Sparrow Prince. Long has my spirit been trapped within this place. Before you lies the maze of the small intestine. One path leads to the stomach, the other to certain doom. Take with you this helmet and torch. Let them be your guide. Take the magic helmet torch to help you light the way. There's still a lot of ground to cross inside the man so gay. Ahead of you lies adventure, and your strength still lies within. Freedom from the ass of doom is the treasure you will win. Oh, Jesus, Jesus Christ! Oh. We can, of course, not say anything about what that episode's about because this is a It's very much geared at young kids. They include most of the stuff that's in the book in some form or another, not Bayorn. They do, but they don't seem to have read the book ever. 
they fall prey to a lot of mispronunciation. Yeah, they seem to have been, I mean, sort of Rivendell, they think they've been told it's the last homely house, so that, that apparently equates to just being a hut. Um, <laughs> it really is shiny. <laughs> that's too literal. It's a, a complex of the last bastion of high elves in Middle Earth, not just a hall that Elrond sits that's with a beard. Why does Elrond have a beard? He does have a bit of a beard. And, and has he got, got stars around his head? He's got, he's permanently dazed, yeah. <laughs> they're not spinning, they're just sort of there <laughs> to show that he's magic. Yeah. Um, I, I, I quite like the John Houston uh, voice of Gandalf. Gandalf? Yeah, I, I do quite like Gandalf because it's. Gandalf. Um, <laughs> it's taking the other thing of, of it's taking hoods um, rather than hats um, yeah. it's, which is and it's a he looks like an old man that could be a free wizard uh, which yeah I quite like I quite like um, his sort of character in this but I think that's the only thing I like I, I wouldn't say they misrepresented Bilbo I think the, the very first I really don't like the art style which doesn't mm-hmm. help and the animation so just it's very through. basic it is very basic um, it's um, not as bad as some but um, we'll get to that yep. yeah yeah uh, Bill was okay um, the and actually does um, say about all the songs about the the, the the plate song is actually okay um, carefully carefully with the plates ship the glasses crack the plates that's what Bilbo Baggins states that's what Bilbo Baggins states so carefully carefully with the plates they got oh, actually i think the across the misty mountains cold song definitely seems to have inspired the the one from the the new film yeah except it's far worse than this far o'er the misty mountains cold dramatic reading that Gandalf does is so bad. No. A lot of the film is, is told in flashback with a sort of some, yeah. uh, uh, there's a, a weird pacing to it because they have to kind of abbreviate a lot. The goblins look mm-hmm. really stupid. Enormous. They look like slithe. <laughs> yeah. I, I, and the, the Ho Ho My Lad song is even worse than the book. What it's, about uh, Gollum? 
I am Mr. Bilbo Baggins. I've lost my dwarves, my wizard, and my way. Garden. Garden. Mind you, I'm armed with an elvish blade. That's better. Perhaps you know the way out? Garden. But perhaps we sit here and chat with it a bit, my precious. It likes riddles. Do I like riddles? Well, yes, after a fashion. It must have a competition with us. If precious asks and it doesn't answer, we. It's it, my precious. Oh, I say. Oh, uh, what's it doing, precious? Yeah. The voice is good, but he's frog golem. He is very froggy. <laughs> so the the voice is actually is both. The voice is better than sort of uh, the the Lord of the Rings animated, but yeah. I like the model in the Lord of the Rings than this. This is horror voice. It's just a frog. He doesn't seem like he has any relation to and, being a store or a hobbit. Yeah, and his eyes sort of go. Um, he, he, when he's like angry, his eyes flash. Yeah, it looks like he's having a seizure. So, I mean, it, actually, all these animations has very weird sound effects. Like um, in the, the Grey Talk bit, when yeah, Thorin draws Orcris, there's a laser sound. Uh-huh. Apparently, that's how swords sound. Well, Star Wars was just coming out. <laughs> you had to get in on that. And then he kills the Great Orc, and which falls down the plug hole. <laughs> as far as he spins round, uh, the ring for some reason has markings on when it's supposed to be unadorned. There's yeah, they do actually point out that it's very plain yeah. in their book, don't yeah. they? So. Uh, for some reason, they put weird markings on for no reason, and there's another weird. They they do the riddle, then they do a weird riddle song. Yes. If if you don't want to have that much talking, just cut out one of the riddles. <laughs> Sharon, you haven't said a word on this. Your thoughts on Hobbit 77? I, I honestly... It hasn't stuck enough in my brain <laughs> other than being... I, I mean, I saw it... The, the first time I saw it, I was very, very young. Um, and I really I, was very drunk. I, did, <laughs> I didn't say drunk. Um, no, I, I, you had to be afterwards. Oh, God. I do... I remember watching in a series that they'd obviously put together because they were sort of fairly similar animation style. Uh-huh. Um, the Hobbit, um, the 78 Lord of the Rings, the Bakshi version, Talk although I, I've never seen Return of the King, and Dot and the Kangaroo. So, <laughs> so, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it's, it's a similar sort of it's not even rotoscoping. They just they put animation over backdrops of Australia. Um, but That's the Hobbit, rotoscoping. Well, no, no, no. I mean, they actually like they draw little animations of little girl riding in a kangaroo's pouch and then just have it hopping along a film in of Australia. Australia's. Oh, wow, okay. Uh, so, like, Australia's who framed Roger Rabbit then? Uh, yeah, yeah, kind of. Um, a really, really low budget Australian <laughs> version. I think I must have been about like six or seven when I saw it. It's a cartoon. It's it is very kiddie. Um, very and it's kiddie. Everything. Yeah. It's aimed at like Lyra's level, like four year olds. Yeah, I mean the the. Don't get me wrong, because obviously the Hobbit is is a children's book. Mm. But it's really children. Yeah, but uh, but I read. I, it the takes Hobbit, all the sharp corners off. 
yeah, you said about, um, you know, I've, I've never actually read Lord of the Rings all the way through, and that's true. I've, I've dipped in and out of it, but I've never actually read the text from cover to cover. Um, but I, I did actually read The Hobbit when I was younger, and the it does seem to have more threat in it in the book than it does in the film. The most interesting bit of characterization is actually at the end uh, of the Hobbit book when uh, Thorin starts getting uh, starts jealously guarding the gold horde and they very briefly touch on that and then move straight on to the battle of the five armies I think the Arkenstone's out completely, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I take it out. Don't and, that and what is up with the Wood Elves? I think you tweeted that you put that in the uh, forum. <laughs> I Chris, d- but I they d- look like these weird, twisted goblins. Yeah. <laughs> they they look like the sa- they look the same as goblins, or they look like a bit like the gr- uh, the Grinch. Farandur looks a bit like the Grinch. He's got a weird um, ac- Russian German accent. It's German. Oh, it's German. It's like I don't. Well, I, I don't know how they could get from Elrond and then to the Wood Elves. They're supposed to be the same species, just one a set bit has been... And a bit more one, German. Yeah, one set has been over the, the waters to the Dionysus and come back. The others have lived in woods all the time. They do not turn to that. I've no idea how they managed to... Artistic interpretation in every... This is what happens when you hang around in forests by yourself. <laughs> Also, there's a weird fixation with um, beards in this film, because the spiders have beards. And Elwan has a beard. And Elwan has a beard, and the uh, Smog has hair. I like Smog in this. It's partly because I adore Flight of Dragons, and that's something I grew up with. But it, it, the animation on this, since it was only um, five years before Flight of Dragons, reminds me a lot of that. Yeah, I, but I don't understand why he looks like a cat. <laughs> <laughs> Got, he's got a, you know hair looks like a, and then he's got a hair all the way down his uh, his tail you know all the way down his back and tail and it just looks he's like a hairy dragon is <laughs> he maybe based on Chinese dragons which are a little bit tiger derived yeah maybe uh, it, it could simply be the fact that they had difficulty making a pointy nose dragon talk yeah they, they managed it just about in Flight of Dragons, but uh, it's it's not normal, and that's what they've always run into difficulty with regarding small, because ultimately they don't have a mouth and a head that's shaped for human speech. Yeah, but they could have just done a voiceover. Um, that looks odd, though. When it, yeah. it's sort of, if, if they're not moving their mouth, there's a disconnect. Yeah, I wonder how they're going to do it in The uh, the Hobbit. I am um, fascinated. You just say The Hobbit. Okay. <laughs> Se- uh, 77, if you mean this one. My last points are the uh, in Lake Town. Lake Town actually looks perfect. That was exactly how I imagined it. I don't know how they managed to luck into doing something that was good. <laughs> it was just random chance. Yeah. Um, uh, during the battle, arrows on wrong side of the bows, all of them. <sighs> I don't know if that was an animation thing. They just didn't want to animate it. You know, they sort of didn't paint it over the bow. They painted it behind it just to. For e- I don't know if that's easier. Uh, and the Battle of the Five Armies, uh, it just looked like it was missing sort of the power and Bosch from early. Andy Cap. Yeah. It looked just a giant dust cloud with a few pebbles flying. Yeah. Well, you, uh, they could not possibly animate thousands of people fighting. No, yeah. But, but um, just, I still was, think there's other ways of doing it than that. Yeah, the, the, right. I, just the way it was cut as well was a bit weird. It looked like it, you know, it reminded me of the, the sort of early Batman, which is sort of cut away to swing and then cut away again. It's like, yeah. It's not how you do it. Anyway. Uh, so, yeah, Hobbit 77. 
I would recommend trekking if you check out on YouTube. It, you should be able to find the entire thing there. Yeah, I would watch it just to see how lucky we are to have yeah. the the new films. But watch or how, it. Or how, watch hope, it before you see yeah, that bit. Hopefully, how lucky we are at having a, a a proper version. Well, I suppose watch the first half and then stop. <laughs> yeah. I have no idea what they're going to do for film three. Are they going to stretch uh, out the second half of the book for two films? I don't. I don't know. I, I can't really work out where they're stopping. I know that uh, Smog is in the second film. So the second one is called the Desolation of Smog. Yeah. So that the third one is called There and Back Again. Um. Yeah. I don't know if they're just going to do the Battle of the Five Armies at the end of the, the second one, and then is there much story to get getting back? I I suspect <laughs> they will include lots of the Silmarillion, and uh, they will cover the what fifty. 60 odd years between that and Lord of the Rings yeah I hope it I mean I would love to well, see that be interesting on it. yeah because yeah, I mean I, I haven't read the Silmarillion for this because it was too, it's far too long that's okay it's enormous uh, but I I remember reading I'm liking I liked sections of it there are good stories like all the Silmarils are interesting and the Baron Luthien bit's interesting and the Fall of Gondolin's interesting yeah they're not going to show that because that will cost too much because um, they got the animate like hundreds of balrogs um which i hate to think how much that costs um and then the, the sort of leading up to the last lights is interesting so I'd, I'd like to get more of that in or hopefully one day possibly do a mini series where they do like a couple of episodes on each section i thought maybe like you remember the animatrix they could have done something like that where you have a bunch of like sort of animated shorts yeah. detailing things that happen in the summer if it's if it's animated like this, though, that will not be good. <laughs> of course it won't be. That's crazy. But they, it would be fascinating to have like, yeah. Taylor Baron and Luthien in animation, but I suspect it'll probably uh, end I, up in this third movie. Yeah, I, th- I mean, they could do it like a Game of, Game of Thrones is popular. They could do it like a, you know, a series of just the, the series of the Silmarillion mm. akin to how they did Game of Thrones and just yeah. do like a like free part. They'd like get free... no arguments from me on that. Yeah. Uh, that'll cost a lot, though. So. Yeah. Okay. One year after Hobbit 77, Ralph Bakshi, the animator behind Fritz the Cat, Coonskin, Heavy Traffic, and Wizards, and later Fire and Ice and Cool World, which, by the way, has a 3% freshness rating, <laughs> helmed a rotoscoped animation version of the first half, or say the first two-thirds, maybe, of the Lord of the Rings story. It's half, really, because you don't get the Frodo and Sam stuff from Two Towers. Yeah. Uh, so what did we think of this film in retrospect? Um, the beginning was weird. It reminded me of a communist video to start with. <laughs> it's all red. I know, it's all red and they were hammering uh, and then it turned into... And I'm sure I saw a sickle in there as well. Yeah, then it turned into uh, a music video uh, which then turned into a, a sort of a university play because of the, the golem. <laughs> With the giant, yeah, solid the giant hands. hands that look like octopi. Yeah. 
Octopi. Sorry. Yeah, I I quite liked it though. Um, the uh, the whole film or the intro? The, just the intro. Oh, okay. It's, um, it's just for folks listening. It's kind of like a Victorian shadow puppet play where like people standing behind gauze will sort of act out a battle like just three men. And uh, many shots in this and for the rest of the film, you could sort of see their analogues turn up in uh, the real Lord of the Rings films when, yeah. like, you know, it's just the Dark Lord Sauron. And it's like, it's got the guy in the same position forging his master ring with his big horny helmet. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I quite like, I think it's because I watched this basically just after watching The Hobbit, so this was far better than anything in The Hobbit. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and it went downhill of it. Long ago, in the early years of the Second Age, the great elven smiths forged rings of power. It began with the forging of the great rings. Nine for mortal men. Nine rings were gifted to the race of men. Seven for the dwarf lords. Seven to the dwarf lords. Three for the tall elf kings. Three were given to the elves, immortal wisest and fairest of all beings. But then the Dark Lord learned the craft of ring-making and made the Master Ring, the one ring to rule them all. In the land of Mordor, in the fires of Mount Doom, the Dark Lord Sauron forged in secret a Master Ring to control all others. One ring to rule them all. With the One Ring, Middle-earth's his, and he cannot be overcome. As the last alliance of men and elves fell beneath his power, he did not notice the heroic shadow who slipped in. It was Prince Isildur of the mighty kings from across the sea who took the ring. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it just it felt closer to the. Uh, the I, just, I think it's just because it, yeah, I think because it was live action and um, not they they knew it would look bad, so they covered it up. I think the way I described it was: imagine the prologue, that mind blowing prologue from the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring, on a budget of thirteen pounds. Yeah, basically. Now this <laughs> film got made. I, I don't know if you've read into this for is it three million or four million? It's four million dollars, and as far as I can tell. Three million of that went on buying the rights to a screenplay they didn't use from John Borman. Wow. Although if Bakshi gave them that three million back, then they may not have included it. Maybe. In which case, it was made for between one and four million. And it, I'm wondering where that one million went. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is the most cheap, reprehensible, lazy boring, joyless animated film I have ever seen. I loathe this film. I hate <laughs> this film. It is disgusting. I wouldn't go that far, mainly because um, there are definitely a few scenes that are direct, sort of directly paralleled in the new film. So at least it... it, it, it well, actually, it, it served a purpose as much of as I hate it, some it, ideas. It was so bad that it, it meant that there wasn't a, a semi-okay version made in the 80s, which would have precluded the Jackson version. Because, you know, if they made it in the 80s and it wasn't massively popular, then that would have been it 
for Lord of the Rings for quite some time until technology caught up. But this was so bad and so forgettable that it held it off for, what, 24 years? Yeah, I I think The Hobbit is worse just because I I hate the art style. They just did not... um seem to care about the law in any way and care I about getting I definitely didn't want to get into an argument over which was worse. They're yeah. both terrible. <laughs> but yeah. uh, um, I think I hate this one because I've actually heard people go, it's actually quite brave. It's actually quite good. It's not. If you actually read up on Ralph Bakshi, the guy's insane and he doesn't care and he doesn't understand people. And here's the thing. It cost $4 million. It made $30 million. Most production studios would be like, Jesus, we've got to get us a sequel. Why we, could you do two sequels? It's not explained anywhere why there wasn't a sequel. But from if you read up on Ralph Bakshi himself, he has clashed with people over and over again. So I would imagine he screamed at one of the producers or one of uh, you know Alan Ladd Jr. or someone and, and basically ruined his chances of having a sequel made. Yeah. Um, right. So the hob- the hobbits in this are not very. I, I, the first hobbits they just act like children, and they're all supposed to be yeah. adults. You know, I think Pippin is almost an adult, but the rest are adults, and that just yeah. It's not. And Sam is the yeah, irony being that uh, uh, Dominic Monaghan is much younger than Billy Boyd. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Sam. Sam's the most annoying voice in the world. And yeah, head like a potato. Yeah, Everyone they want ugly in this film. And they lowered his IQ points by quite a few. Yeah, he's an imbecile. It's like I and except Gandalf, the bit really goes. You can't. You haven't got long legs, Sam. So use your mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he has got a mind. <laughs> Me go there. Me go and see the elves. Oh my! Oh hooray! Yeah, um, and Gandalf overacts so much. He goes, "Whoa, hands!" all the time. In the land of <laughs> where the shadows lie. If you thought yeah. that it was po-faced in the Weta films, <laughs> it is so po-faced in this. Um, There's not a shred of humour. Are we going to dis- discuss the Saruman Araman thing? Yeah, they they and, keep oh, calling Saruman Araman. Yeah, what well, they read? Well, there is actually. White or many colours. The subtitles always said Saruman, Hmm. and he does say Saruman and Araman interchangeably. Yeah. I must go south now to consult with the wizard Araman, the head of my order. I have come for your aid, Saruman the White, in troubled times. It goes one and the other. I think they were trying not to get him confused with Sauron, but maybe they did different takes later on where they just called him Saruman or, or earlier. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if sometimes the actor forgot. Most likely... It's, or, it's got to be most likely because the voice director didn't care. It's yeah, or, obvious. This is everyone did this on a first take. Yeah, or in editing, uh, as yeah, if it was a first take in editing, the S was uh, uh, yeah. too noisy or something or too quiet, and they had to just cut that and just have oh, it's Araman. Araman, and he turns into a sparkling flasher as well. Yep, he does um, do that. <laughs> I'm so many colours, flash. Where is the ring, Gandalf? Why do the Black Riders search for it in the Shire? Have you hidden it there? Would you rather see the Dark Lord have it? Galadriel, for that, I know it's jumping ahead, but that bit where uh, in the real film she goes, In place of a Dark Lord, you would have a queen! She goes, In place of a Dark Lord, you would have a queen, and I would be beautiful and terrible as the dawn. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's like, oh my god! Yeah, and her, and her mirror turned into kaleidoscope. Yep. There is Apparently, that's yes. magic. <laughs> and then uh, the point where Gandalf is like, "Fly, you fools!" Instead, in the film, it's just the, like, fly, you fools. All right. The, the Balrog is a lion with wings. Now it's a bloke with a lion's head. Maybe well, yeah. a it flies. If it flies, why does breaking the bridge matter? Yeah. You cannot pass. I am a servant of the secret fire. You cannot pass. Oh, back to the shadow. You cannot pass. Should it? We go. What? I'm hovering. What's your point? Because at least in in I mean there is a debate. You know, could it fly? Does does the barrel fly? And at least in the 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 it, it can't fly. Was that obviously that scene means nothing? They appear to have wing. It appears um, to have wings, but they mean mainly for show. Yeah, I think they're the vestigial wings. Um, it's quite possible that it's too heavy for those wings to support. Yeah. Um, so also um, the ring race. I don't understand what they are. Well, they, they don't seem to have any ability to move. They're sort of, you know, tottering so, around like drunken yeah, I, women. It seems to be that's why they're always on horses or fell beasts because they're crippled. They can't do anything else. <laughs> it's like, I don't, that's not in the book. Why did you do that? I don't. It, it would be maybe scary to a toddler. And in Brie, for some reason, they shoot gas at uh, Mary and Mary. he falls over. Falls over. They, so they, they walk the away. Bit. Stab all of the um, the beds. Oh. That was used in the film. Yeah, yeah. That, I like that. Yeah, because that was. Oh yeah. Up until the bit, they all went into a huddle and woo, with their and their hands went up. Yeah, jazz hands. <laughs> yeah. And um, Legolas's oh. eyes are too close together, and a yeah. they point in the wrong direction. <laughs> they look so weird. It's like they drew his eyes. On stickers and then put them on wrong, but it was One too late to change it. Back on again. Yeah. And um, yeah, when the um, uh, we have a top bit where they have the sort of I think the I think it's rotoscope when he goes into the uh, uh, spectral vision. Yeah, uh, they, they look like the knights who say knee. <laughs> they're standing there in dark with stupid hats on and to make them look like they got pig faces. With yeah, red I eyes. they look more scary there than they did previously, but. The enemy is upon us. We want a shrubbery. A what? Please, please, no more. We will find you a shrubbery. It seems like there's lack of continuity between animation. 
And yeah. um, uh, the, the, some things can look like one thing one time, and then when it's a completely different animation style, it's something else entirely. Yeah, it's like the whole rotoscope thing. I don't understand why they did it because sometimes they, I can see, I can see them doing it just for like just the orcs or just in spectral vision. But, or when you have to do, depict a lot of people. That's, yeah, but sometimes I mean, in Moria, they I did a, a scene where they just walk across the the room, and they that's real. You know, it's why did they do that? I it makes it look really weird. My issue with the rotoscoping is that it never seems to be done for a stylistic reason, and yeah. there's no consistency to it. It's whenever it turns up, it looks like they've done it to fill in a bit because they didn't have enough money to finish that shot off properly, or they ran yeah. out of time, and so they had to do something that would come through fast. It never looks like they did it on purpose, and therefore the whole stylistic effect of it is is messed up somewhat. And um, the, the music is abominable. <laughs> I, I will already have played some music so you folks can listen to it now. It's, it's horrible. <laughs> it just plays brum, 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 throughout the entire film. Completely jumping around the fight, but Rivendell looks like it's a Tibetan monastery. Um, better than a hut. I know, it's better than a hut, but it's got, it's, you know, it's sort of got the, the style and it's sort of floating. It's not in like, especially in a valley, not, it looks like it's on the side of a mountain rather than a valley, which which I don't. Nobody understand. wears pants. No one wears <laughs> trousers at all. As I said, Strider basically wears a man skirt and a really really long cloak that would drag in the mud and catch on trees. He's got this squashy face, and he's voiced by John Hurt, who I love, but he sounds like a really patronising old man. Yeah, and he's got bare legs, which would get slashed to pieces on brambles. Bare arms, he'd get so cold so quickly. It's nothing about that character is practical. Yeah, and Boromir's a Viking. Viking. One yeah. does not simply be a Viking. And Gimli is a giant fisherman. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't look like a dwarf. He looks like a short man. I don't, well, they don't, yeah, they don't in the Hobbit as well. They just don't. They don't look like dwarves. They just look like small people with beards. Yeah, with with beards, but not. I mean, they're they're not going outfitted for war. But they're hop. They're they're dwarves. They should be wearing some sort of armor because that's what they do. Mind you, in the in the book, they're described as having a little um, taffeta hoods, and I well, think they yeah. wear lace, and they have little tiny <laughs> knives. Uh, they yeah. they don't seem tough in the book whatsoever. They get captured like five times. They don't fight anyone until the very very end. Not that they have to, but these they don't seem capable. They don't seem to be able to do what they set out to do, which is to hunt treasure and fend off goblin attacks. Yeah, those trolls in the Hobbit, in the Hobbit, they're just—they're not trolls. <laughs> they sort of like—they look like big orcs. Cause that seems to be the stylistic choice they're going yeah. with. And then they just—then they just like, oh, the sun. The Gandalf somehow made the sun rise. I, I think we're going to uh, see what really actually happens coming up in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Um, I suspect Gandalf just turned them all to stone. Gandalf. I, I hope they go into the, the riddle thing and you know talk to him throwing his voice and just say, oh look, the sun has risen, rather than hopefully. It just, it seems like, it's not the sort of thing you'd forget. Like, if they were that stupid, it would have happened before. Yeah. Um, they would have got into an argument about something else. It's, 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 it's the sort of thing you'd write for a small child you were patronising <laughs> aged four. Yeah, and he's not, I mean, he's not supposed to be that time, he's supposed to be the most powerful visitor. How can he cause the sun to rise? Yeah. Possibly Gandalf the White, but anyway, uh, I'm Gandalf the White. 
Make the Earth um, turn faster. Uh, yeah, so and then Lord of the Rings, the Bakshi version, now called Rings 78, if we're ever yeah, going to refer to it. It's just the orcs. One of them speaks very well and rolls his R's perfectly. Rolls his R's. Take <laughs> him to Isengard. <laughs> I don't know why they did that. And the rise of Rohan. One just charges in and gets killed. I did. For no reason. I did point that out. He jumps off his horse. Yeah. To an orc and gets stamped to death. I don't, I don't know if that's supposed to be Theodred and they thought, oh, we have to kill him, but we're not going to do the Fords of Eisen, so we'll just do it there. It can't be Theodred. It just happens incidentally. Well, I know, but. I don't think they read the book that closely. No. There's so much of this just seems to be cutting corners. Yeah. Chucking um... out what they can. Uh, tree beards. I don't like the animation, but I think the voice is quite well, well done. Don't uh, about a minute and a half. He's only a minute and a half. Captain but... Caveman with a leafy hat. <laughs> <laughs> all of the orcs. There's like fifteen of them. They wear Hessian sacks, <laughs> and there's like two different kinds. Yeah. Three. Like there's the kind that looks like they've got a uh, a pig head on, and there's the kind that looks like they've got like a gorilla head on. Yeah, and one's wearing a, a flame retardant the cover thing they wear under you know under bracing helmets. Later on, they uh, look like sand people, but there's no <laughs> differentiation made between Moria goblins, orcs of Baradur, and Uruks of Isengard. Yeah, three completely different species or subspecies. Every confrontation does very much blend into each other because it's just here are the heroes, here are the people with heroes fighting. The, the combat is awful. Yeah. Everyone flings <laughs> themselves around the place. Yeah, Aragorn the... specifically can't fight for Toffee. Yeah, the bit, the bit in Moria is like, oh, this is one that somehow can best um, uh, Aragorn and I think Boromir and Gimli and get through somehow. At least and in the Chuck film. Spirit, uh, and Chuck Spear. And Chuck Spear, yeah. That was a cave, cave troll. I know, it's a cave troll. That makes more, far more sense. Um, but I think they're, probably, they're working from the book, and that scene in the book was awful as well. In this, Grimer is weird. He, as he you said. looks like a pedo. He's got yeah, a little does. moustache and, a, and a sneaky eyes. Uh, yeah, I don't know what they were doing <laughs> again. And then it um, just stops. Now, this thing, Bakshi says that if they'd called it The Lord of the Rings Part 1, people would have gone in knowing that it was going to finish abruptly, and then would have you know been really excited about seeing Part 2. He's said that the studio said they didn't want to call it part one because no one would go and see a part one if they thought, well, why are we going to go see part one? Then there's only going to be a part two. I've checked. Sequels were happening at this point. Godfather Part 2 came out in 1974. Star Wars was out, but Jedi... Oh, sorry, uh, Empire wasn't out for another two years. But Jaws 2 had come out. I mean, there'd been multiple bombs. There were lots. There were several. James Bond films. That sequels happened. They weren't as big as they suddenly became in the 80s, but it happened. And also, the thing is, you can only fool people for a week... Because once a week, back in those days, after a week, it would hit the general press, this film is an incomplete tale. But I don't get why people were sort of going to the cinema thinking, oh, they're going to contain the entirety of Lord of the Rings in this one film. Yeah, I, I don't even know why Fans this... Fans of the book wouldn't think that. No, no. Fans of the book would fear that, frankly. <laughs> yeah, especially if they knew the running time. Yeah, but back she's uh, under the impression that everyone would have loved it if they called it Lord of the Rings Part 1. <laughs> He also, he's such a bitter bastard. <laughs> if, you, if you listen to it, he was like, well, when, when the uh, Jackson film came out, that's good, you know, well, he at least had something to wa- work with. We had nothing. We just had the book. <laughs> it's just a shame no one ever picked up the phone, maybe sent me a bottle of wine, maybe some recognition for all the hard work I'd done, you know. <laughs> God's sake, you self-entitled <laughs> prick! The, all the Rohirrim soldiers look like He-Man, uh, and there's a weird orc marching music. 
for some reason they were using battering ram on the deeping wall. <laughs> Keep hitting this wait. giant yeah. wall. Then and the, magic... what, the guys up the top didn't know what to do at that point. Maybe we should tip some Yeah, stuff. and then magic missiles came in. Oh yes, fire from my foot. <laughs> um, destroyed the wall somehow, and I, and then the orcs ran away. Yep. <laughs> and then Gandalf turns up. Yeah, I, I. Are the two incidents not related? What? Or do they st- do they start to run before he arrives? I think they start to run, and then he just sort of comes in. Mm. I don't know. I, I gave up. It can't <laughs> just be that the film was awful that they didn't make another one because the amount of bad films that get sequels because they're very yeah. very popular. Yeah, I think cancels I mean, that out. Yeah, I think this would have got a sequel if it hadn't. Obviously, must have been some sort. Of it's got to have been like a social breakdown between them. Um, Bakshi and company yeah yeah because he kept talking about wanting to do a sequel so it's not like he didn't want to do one or but also what I don't get is why didn't they just get someone else to do it yeah if he was that self-entitled why didn't he just make one himself and damn the because the all the rights were owned by them now either way in 1980 yeah. In the absence of any kind of follow-up, Rankin Bass came back again after The Hobbit <laughs> 77 and did a film which sort of concluded the trilogy, as it were, if you take The Hobbit as part one and Ring 78 as part two. Uh, it, they couldn't really talk about stuff that happened in Lord of the Rings and thus Aragorn and pretty much everyone else in the Fellowship apart from Gandalf were relegated to the sidelines and it was just about uh, Frodo, Sam and a little bit of Merry and Pippin. It's yeah, mostly it's not, just a Hobbit story. It's annoying because this is obviously the same style and say, people as the, the Hobbit. I want to see what Legolas would have looked like. Yeah. <laughs> Probably one of those weird wood elves. <laughs> yeah. Because, um, I mean, he's the son of... Um, yeah, Farrandra. So. Yeah. Oh, well... <laughs> But yeah, Rivendell's a hut again, bearded ale on his back, and Pippin looks like a chimp. I don't know why I've got the greatest adventure song again. Different uh, words. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's so easy not to try. <laughs> <laughs> it's so easy not to try. Let the world go drifting by. If you never say hello You won't have to say goodbye Larry Wings journeyed a distance far and fast To find his way out of a gay man's ass The road ahead is filled with danger and pride But push onward, Larry Wings, with all of your might Larry Rings came to the stormy dark Neath the depths of the lungs and heart You chose your path wisely, Lemmy Winks. I am the Catatterfish. Catatterfish of the Stormix Cove. If you answer this riddle, the esophagus will let you pass. Catatterfish's riddle will soon be told. See, I kind of liked the the songs throughout that. It's, there's a sort of a fondness to it, and it, it sort of hones in on the whole the parting of the hobbits at the end, and they got the grey havens there. So I, I find this difficult to hate, although yeah. it is, again, 
that there's very little raw talent involved. Yeah, that song is better than the song at the end of Return of the King. Uh, are you talking about the uh, about uh, the uh, the twenty first Annie sentence? Lennox one? Yeah, I hated that. Okay, we're going to have to stop, stop <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Because, jeez, that song, is, I want that played at my funeral. Really? That's how much I care about that song. That's how heartfelt that song is for me. I, I, I don't like her voice. I don't like how she sings it. Sharon? Um, I, d- I don't think I can legitimately <laughs> comment. <laughs> One thing I will say, actually, about the, the music in this, the... Where there's a whip. I'm not going to say I liked it on a musical level, um, but I did think that having that sort of wandering minstrel bookend feel to it did kind of tie in with the idea of this is a mythology and we're telling a story here. And uh, from that perspective, I thought it... I wasn't massively keen on it, but it worked, if you see what I mean. Yeah, they they do that with the... You know the, the new films by they started yeah in the extended editions they started with Bilbo talking about you know sort of reading the book while he's writing it and then ends with Frodo finishing the book yeah. which I quite liked and they yeah they do it in this um, I, I quite like that whip song it's just bad enough to be good yeah I'll play this now it's it's a it's an orc marching song where there's a whip there's a way and it's really difficult to take their army seriously if they're singing <laughs> this. I'd probably sing a Hobbit song. <laughs> uh, Glenn Yarborough is the minstrel of Gondor who sings in that sort of ululating voice. Let me winks. <laughs> Even less people will have seen this than the first two. So I, it's an oddity and it's really hard to find. Um, it was on YouTube in its entirety. Oops. And now it's not. I don't know, for, for completists, if you actually want to look at this strange, weird freak show of, a, of yeah. a, an attempt at Lord of the Rings, you know, back way before there was the technology. But here's the thing. Think about the production values of, say, I don't know, what was made at the time, Star Wars. 
you know, they they could have done a creaky version of Lord of the Rings. I mean, look at the the fantasy of the early eighties is almost entirely rubbish. The best being Willow, but that happened ten years later. I I would have preferred live action one though, just because it if it was like I mean if I think the problem is the Lord of the Rings probably would cost more than Star Wars because obviously they need to yeah, be adapting to something. Watch, yeah. Adapting something, you have to put certain scenes in, which cost the most money. Yeah. I think I read that um, Bakshi and Lucas actually had a similar deal with the studio. Um, that basically they were they were being part paid in f- franchise and merchandise rights, and, right. and and essentially their their salary would succeed or fail based on how well the films did and both of them found that they were running out of money towards the end of the uh, the production run and the studio said to them you're going to have to put the money up yourself if yeah. you want to get this finished which so by I the way happened to peter jackson he actually put his own money up mm-hmm. uh, for, to, to help the funding on return of the king but I, th- I think that kind of tells you the studio's only partly responsible for the fact that it, it's it's the way it is. Ultimately, this one has it's got to fall on the creator for for the um, I suppose part. I wouldn't mind uh, if it was animated, if it was live action. What I w- would have loved to have seen from back then, and actually would have loved growing up with, is a Lord of the Rings that had heart and soul and talent put into it by people who actually loved the books. And I don't think any of these productions involve genuine love and adoration, and or certainly not understanding of the books. Yeah, we had to wait for that, and it yeah, hit me at just the right time. Twenty-one years old, I was perfect to get this. Being starved of proper fantasy as a uh, teenager. Yeah, I think this. Don't think obviously it shows the the Hobbits have not they've not read the books enough or understood the books enough to do an adaptation of them because there's just so many problems. Hmm. Um, the amount of uh, mispronunciations, especially in Ring 78 as well, they don't know. Uh, every single word they look at and go, I guess it's pronounced like this. They don't check. <laughs> no. there's, there's a glossary. Tolkien yeah. being a major fan of language, and there's a glossary of the exact pronunciations of all of his words. There's no excuse not to yeah. have done their research. It's in the, the Lord of the Rings, they say Celeborn, which is, it should be Celeborn, but yeah. it's not that hard, <laughs> surely. Um, I think and- that, that is a, a- an Americanism, I think they, they don't grasp that Celtic languages have a hard C. Well, yeah, they they but also, everything is pronounced wrong. Yeah, they all they all say Sauron as well. Yeah, but yeah, and the the Nazgul in this, they're riding Pegasus, Pegasus, Pegasuses, Pegasi, Pegasi. Yeah, Why? as closest to fell beasts as they could. <laughs> yeah. they, they didn't really describe fell beasts in the book, did well, they? I know, but they, they describe what but the Witch the- King is riding. They they make the Witch King one. Like the book, why didn't they just do that for all of them? It's and the the, the Nazgul are skeletons with hair and red that's eyes. Not, and red eyes. That's not what a Nazgul is. That's just uh, also the the voice of the Witch King. <laughs> it's like skeletal. Skeletal. Be gone, foul Dwimmerlake, Lord of Carrion. Leave the dead in peace. Come not between the Nazgul and his prey. Or he will slay thee in turn. Do what you will. I will hinder it if I may. Hinder me? Thou fool! Dost thou not know the prophecy? No living man may hinder me. But no living man am I. You look upon a woman. Eowyn am I. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. 
For living or dark undead, I will smite you if you touch him. A woman? Yes. Now, evil Lynn, I shall take out the entirety of Minas Morgul. Minas Tirith, sorry. Yeah, Yeah, Oh, that might be as terrifying. Gandalf's just sitting on minus, a tower, not as it's pronounced. Minus. Minus. Yeah, he's, he, Gandalf's just sitting there, not actually doing anything. Yeah. He's just hoping that the road here will come. Please, I mean, you might. Like, again, they couldn't really film a battle scene, not with yeah. Uh, it's it's awful, frankly. Looking back on this, they're they're all awful. It's just it's yeah. it's which ones offend you more? Frankly, the the Bakshi one offends me more because there's no love in the film whatsoever. At least yeah. the the, the Rankin Bass ones, because there is a correlation with something that I really do love, Flood of Dragons and Thundercats. Um, then I can I can warm to them a bit more. But none of yeah. them are great. Why at the end does it say that hobbits through the generations are growing bigger? They're evolving, evolving into humans, apparently. Yep. And that's that doesn't the have idea. No generations. That doesn't make and sense because there are already so humans in. There would have yeah. to be humans inter interbreeding uh, with the hobbits, yeah. surely. Yeah. A, that doesn't happen over generation. B, Mary and Fifth are big because they drink, rank, and draft. Yes. And if they'd read that book, they would know that. Maybe it, there's a bit of hobbit in you. Would you like? I know. Some? It implied. It implied, <laughs> yeah, it, it implied. Yeah, like that. This is happening in this world and. Oh, you could have hobbit ancestors. It's like, well, I don't think it's that well researched. I no. think it's just a very romantic way of saying this. The hobbit will survive in our hearts <laughs> and in our poems. The Lord of the Rings. By J.R.R. Tolkien, prepared for radio in 13 episodes by Brian Sibley, with Ian Holm, Michael Horton, and Robert Stevens. In 1981, the BBC released one of several Lord of the Rings radio plays. Uh, this one was uh, 26 episodes long. I have just finished The Fellowship of the Ring on that side of it, and uh, it stars as Frodo Baggins, confusingly but extremely gratifyingly nonetheless, Ian Holm. How familiar are you with this series, Chris? I, I have them all. I've li- I think I listened to them many years ago, and I've just, I just listened to the, 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 you know, sort of the first disc, which is mm. the first quarter okay. of the Fellowship. What do you think? Well, it's a lot better than the animated films. Hell yes. <laughs> don't really want to say too much until I've listened to them all. I want to... Yeah, you don't want to listen to, the, listen to them, and I'm gonna I'll post on the forum my updated view. But sure. just listening to the first hour, uh, it's very good. I mean, Gan- obviously Frodo God's is perfect. <laughs> yeah, Frodo is perfect. Gandalf is perfect. John Lemaitre as Bilbo. Uh, he seems a bit too sort of old and grave, and yes, yeah, come here, Frodo. He Very basically posh. the um, all the characters I've heard him play are exactly the same. Uh, a slightly uh, vague and so the bit where he gets angry at Gandalf he doesn't sound angry at all he's just yeah. slightly agitated and it's not similar to, to you know in the films where that scene happens and that scene is, is perfect and in this it's just he's just like the weak point but he, he's not in it very much so it's it's not much of a dampener I'm leaving everything to him everything the ring as well well, uh, yes, yes, I, I suppose so. Where is it? In an envelope, if you must know. There, on the mantelpiece. 
Where? Bilbo? I don't see it. What? Bless my soul. No, no, no. No, it's here. It's here in my pocket. Now, isn't that odd? Oh. Well, then, after all, why not? Why shouldn't it stay there? There's no need to get angry about it. I'm angry because it's mine. It's my own. My precious. Ah. Yes. My precious. Ah. It's been called that before, but not by you. Well, I must say it now. Even if that horrid golem creature said the same once, it's not his now. He lost it, and I found it, and now it belongs to me, and I shall keep it. If you say that again, Bilbo, I shall get angry. And then you shall see Gandalf the Grey uncloaked. None other than uh, Mr. Bill Nye plays Sam, and it's very up and down right now. Uh, I've, I'm Like I said, I'm a, the just finished Fellowship of the Ring, and... There's a bit where he, when he starts off, he's really loud and annoying. And he's got this uh, kind of this voice like this, which is so <laughs> many people have portrayed him in that same kind of way. Well, bless my beard. Sam Gamgee. And what might you be doing under Mr. Frodo's window? Lord bless you, Mr. Gandalf, sir. Nothing! Leastways, I, I, I was just trimming the grass borders, if you follow me. I don't. How long have you been eavesdropping? Begging your pardon, sir, but there ain't no ease at Bag End, and that's fact. Don't be a fool. What have you heard? Why did you listen? Well, Mr. Frodo, sir, don't let him hurt me, sir. Don't let him turn me into anything unnatural. My old dad would take on so. I mean no harm, on my honour, sir. He won't hurt you. But just you up and answer his questions straight away. But there was one point when he sang a song, and it's kind of... He sounds like um, David Bowie. And Bill Nye can really sing as well. So it's, it was a wonderful little moment. And I've got a feeling that later on, as it gets more dramatic and more personal, he's going to really excel. Gilgalad was an elven king. Of him the harpers sadly sing. The last whose realm was fair and free. Between the mountains and the sea His sword was long, his lance was keen His shining helm afar was seen The countless stars of heaven's field Were mirrored in his silver shield But long ago he rode away, and where he dwelleth none can say, for into darkness fell his star in Mordor where the shadows are. The worst casting choice so far is Peter Woodthorpe as Gollum. Now... He's the same guy who played Gollum in Ring 78, the Bakshi version. Who does this awful camp, like skeleton from Super Ted. Oh, precious, oh, cruel master hurts us. Don't let him hurt us, precious. <laughs> it, it's not just because Andy Serkis does it so incredibly well. That is an awful, annoying voice. Don't hurt us. Don't let them hurt us, precious. Cruel little hobbitses. Jumps on us like cats on poor mices. Go We'll be nice to them if they'll be nice to us. Won't we, precious? 
Oh, no. Not, not one of those horrible slimy. Do as I say. All right. All right. What? I knew something was going to happen. I could feel it in my bones. Oh, no. The pearls. Lyra, for example, Gollum scares the crap out of her. And we presented her with this Gollum and said, he's not scary. And she had to sort of watch him and go, oh, actually, yeah, no, he's not scary at all. He's neither scary nor interesting, complex as a character. It's a horrible depiction of him. Now, from what I've heard, Woodthorpe has reined it in somewhat and is doing a better performance. But it's still the same guy, still doing the same voice. It's, he's got a better voice director, that's all. Yeah, I didn't think it was that bad, but I've only listened to the first hour. Not very much of him, but we shall see when he gets um, to, again like, with the, with the hefty. Uh, I, I thought there stuff. was some uh, Andrew Andy Circus possibly based some of the bits on that because he did some of the things were similar. I mean, Andy Circus does it a lot better, but it, it's a, it's at least it's more similar to that than the animated in the animated films ever were. So at least it's it's moving in the right direction yeah. as the years have gone on. <laughs> The guy playing Aragorn, again, pretty good. He's a little bit sort of old and serious sounding. Yeah, I think but he is 87, so... Yeah, I know, I think it's probably people that may not be as aware of the, the fiction say oh he's 87 so I have to do it as an old man but that's that's yeah. he's not that you know he's that's he nothing he is a man in his 40s yeah what news from the north riders of Rohan who are you and what are you doing in this land I am called Strider I come out of the north I am hunting orcs indeed you know little of orcs if you go hunting them in this fashion are you elvish folk no one only of us is an elf, Legolas, from the woodland realm in distant Mirkwood. But we have passed through Lothlorien, and the gifts and favour of the lady go with us. Then there is a lady in the Golden Wood, as old tales tell. Beware, Lord. Few escape her nets, they say. Aye. And if you have her favour, then maybe you are also net weavers and sorcerers. Why do your companions not speak? Give me your name, Horsemaster, and I will give you mine and more besides. I am named Aomer, son of Aomund, and I'm called the Third Marshal of Riddermark. Then, Aomer, son of Aomund, Third Marshal of Riddermark, let Gimli the Dwarf, glowing son, warn you against foolish words. You speak evil of that which is fair beyond the reach of your thoughts. And only little witch can excuse you! I would cut off your head, beard and all, Master Dwarf, if it stood but a little higher from the ground. <laughs> he stands not alone! I can string and loose an arrow quicker than sight. You would die before your stroke fell. Would I? Your pardon, Elmer. When you know more, you will understand why you have angered my companions. Will you not hear our tale before you strike? I will. But first... Tell me your right name. First, tell me whom you serve. But the significant thing is, it, it is pitched and it is paced like the Jackson films. 
it, the the way that the voice direction goes, it has the same kind of tempo to it, and the delivery is very similar. And it seems like it could have actually been made yesterday. It could have actually been made in retrospect of the Jackson films, and that is huge. These productions are as old as I am. They're 81, so yeah, what, a, a year younger. 31 years old. It's very impressive, and um, from what I've heard of it, really good. The, the bit with um, Galadriel doing her... Um, Speech about a place of the dark, or you do have a queen, actually draw tears to your eyes, Sharon. Yeah, I it think. It did, yeah. I know what it was you last saw. For that is also in my mind. Do not be afraid. Do not think that only by singing amid the trees, nor even by the slender arrows of elven bows, is this land of Lothlorien maintained and defended against its enemy. I say to you, Frodo. That even as I speak to you, I perceive the Dark Lord and know his mind. And he gropes ever to see me and my thought. But still the door is closed. She lifted up her white arms and spread out her hands towards the east in a gesture of rejection and denial. Arendil, the evening star, most beloved of the elves, shone clear above. And its rays glanced upon a ring about her finger. Yes. You understand. It is one of the three rings which were saved by the elves and which is kept hidden from Sauron. But it cannot be hidden from the ring bearer and one who has seen the eye. Verily it is in the land of Lorien that one of the three remains. Of Naria, the red ring of fire, I cannot speak. Velia, the sapphire ring of air, is on the finger of Elrond. Nenya, the ring of water, the ring of adamant, is in my keeping. Sauron suspects, but he does not know. Not yet. Do you not see now wherefore your coming is to us as the footsteps of doom? For if you fail, then we are laid bare to the enemy. Yet if you succeed, then our power is diminished and Lothlorien will fade and the tides of time will sweep it away. I would wish, were it of any avail, that the one ring had never been wrought. Or it remained forever lost. You are wise and fearless, Lady Galadriel. I will give you the one ring if you ask for it. It is too great a matter for me. Wise the Lady Galadriel may be. Yet here she met her match in courtesy. Gently are you revenged for my testing of your heart at our first meeting. You begin to see with a keen eye. I do not deny that my heart has greatly desired to ask what you offer. For many long years I have pondered what I might do should the great ring come into my hands. And behold, it is brought within my grasp. You will give me the ring freely. In place of the Dark Lord, you will set me up as queen. And I shall not be dark 
but beautiful and terrible as the morning and the night, fair as the sea and the sun and the snow upon the mountain, dreadful as the storm and the lightning, stronger than the foundations of the earth. All shall love me and despair. The Lady Galadriel lifted up her hand, and from the ring of adamant there issued a great light that illuminated her alone. She stood before Frodo, seeming now tall beyond measurement, terrible, and worshipful. Then she let her hand fall. The light faded, and lo, she was shrunken, a slender elf woman. Clad in simple white, whose gentle voice was soft and sad. I pass the test. I will diminish and go into the west, and remain Galadriel. So I think it just shows the quality of Radio Four. <laughs> We're going to sound left wing of it, but it because they, while some of the things are a bit off, at least they understood the subject matter enough to 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 do a good job it's not perfect but it's obviously far better than anything we've talked about it's not across the board though because uh, they no, did no. a radio play of his dark materials more recently and they were terrible it even had terence stamp in it yeah well but they're terrible na- nowadays bbc is not what bc used to be actually <laughs> <laughs> Uh, honestly, from what I've heard of it so far, I, I recommend tracking down and listening to the radio plays. I, I believe if you do some searching on YouTube, you can hear the first two, which will give you a taster. Yeah, I don't think they're that expensive to buy. Yeah. I think Amazon, are, you get a big box set of them now. I need to see, there, there's a, I know there was a some sort of audio version of The Hobbit. I don't know if it was a, seemed to be, I don't know if it was just a audio book or it was a, a actual radio play of mm. it. Um, that that creeped me out. I, did, I I could not work out. That's the first thing I ever heard of the Lord of the Rings. I could not work out what Gollum was. Gotcha. Um, it just it reminded me of a snake because of the hissing, and I just I kept fix, fixating him being a snake, and that just confused me. I think um, one thing that um, impressed me about the the BBC version of Lord of the Rings uh, very they, first off they had someone doing some narration at sometimes not the whole way through, yeah. but when he's describing them moving into a new place, he describes it rather than have people say out loud what they're seeing, which is always, always seems unnatural. And it's something I encountered when I made Batman breakdown. You have to keep it down to what people would actually say. And very rarely do they have to actually describe something they're seeing or hearing in a way that wouldn't sound right in their text. And they've stuck very closely to Tolkien's original prose. And without all of the extra MacGuff of, of Tolkien describing things and talking about going and having tea and scones, there's, it's mainly just down to almost Shakespearean uh, speech and just talking to it, uh, one another. And that stuff's really great to listen to. Do they um, have many songs next? So uh, the sort of hour I've listened to, they had the uh, the walking song, which was actually quite well done. I've I've not heard a single uh, song that annoyed me. Okay. What songs they do have have actually been quite appealing. There was one okay. uh, one bit when um, Boromir explains his dream, and there's a, like a single choir boy singing about um, Boromir's doom, and it it sounds like Ben Del Maestro from uh, uh, Fellowship of the Ring. On the eve of the last assault on Minas Tirith. A dream came to my brother, Faramir, in a troubled sleep. 
and afterwards to me. In that dream I thought the eastern sky grew dark and there was growing thunder, but in the west a pale light lingered and out of it I heard a voice, remote but clear. but a much more sort of somber one so I can see why they went right we want one of them it seems to have really influenced the uh, the, the Weta films but they've also credited uh, Bakshi 78 version as uh, as, credit, as helping well, that, with some shots oh, yeah, yeah there are like two at least two shots that are yeah. basically recreated so it seems like a sort of this is how you do things wrong so they just did everything <laughs> yeah. that was the opposite of that hello this is Lily and Today, I'm going to look at The Hobbit for the Spectrum. I really vaguely remember playing this when I was a wee girl, and I remember trying all kinds of text combinations and not really getting the point of this text-based game, so hopefully, now I'm a little older, I might understand it a bit more. This is very familiar. You are in a comfortable tunnel-like hall. To the east, there is a round green door, you see a wooden chest. Gandalf. Gandalf is carrying a curious map, Thorin. Gandalf gives you the curious map. This is this is how you do it, right? Okay, talk Gandalf, I've typed in. You talk to Gandalf. Gandalf opens the round green door. Thorin says, hurry up. Um the chest, isn't there? Inspect. Do not know inspect chest. Um, look chest. Do not know look oh. chest. <laughs> it's gone back to this. Open chest. Do not know open chest. How do I like interact with something in the chest? You can't. The chest is too heavy to lift. There's nothing in the bloody chest. Um. I only put it there to annoy you. Inside chest what? And it worked. Um, I don't really know any of the words to say. Ha ha. Let me just have a quick look. I should have done this before, really. It's 1982. I don't think there's anything in there. Follow Gandalf. Ray Gunn is president. You are in a gloomy, empty land with dreary hills ahead. Did you see Tron? That was the best documentary ever. To the west there is a round green door. Visible exits are east, north, northeast. You see nothing. <laughs> Thorin enters. I can't believe you're still trying to play me. I'll try and talk to Thorin again. If I press backspace it gets rid of all of it. Go away. Thorin waits. Let's go east again, because that's the direction. I poisoned your coffee. Gandalf went in. Trolls clearing. With technology. Uh, various video games have been produced over the years. I'm just going to fire them off and just you sound out if you have anything to say about them. The Hobbit, 1982. Hey! 
That's not something to Impossible to finish. <laughs> Impossible to finish. In fact, I think the reason I read The Hobbit when I was seven, or however old I was when I was playing this, um, was to try and work out how in the heck to finish the game. You could say how. Or how in the hell to finish the game. The, it, I kept getting stuck. At, there's a bit where you go into Mirkwood and um, and things with bulbous eyes drop down on you and sting, and no way of getting out of spiders. It did help me. It did help me figure out that the way to get out of the cellar was to ride on the barrels. And there was one point where you got out of a window by telling Gandalf to carry you because Gandalf. he was the only person in the room tall enough to reach the window. Mm-hmm. Um, but was it was text based? Did you text based adventure game? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, but I don't I don't believe they released it complete. I don't think it was it was actually possible to finish it. Um, but it was one of these little little games where you you know go north and type in pick up key and um, you know hide in cave wait for sun to rise trolls turn into stone that kind of thing. It was fun. I liked it. I have no idea what it would look like now. The volatility of the characters coupled with rich physics and impossible to predict fighting system meant that the game could be played in many different ways that could also lead to problems, such as an important character being killed early on and rendering the game unfinishable. Yeah, I killed Thorin once. That might have been why you couldn't finish. Well, no, I didn't do that every time. There were numerous possible solutions, and with hindsight, the game might be regarded as one of the first examples of emergent gaming. That's uh, referring to complex situations of video games, board games, or tabletop role-playing games that emerge from the interaction of relatively simple game mechanics. Okay, uh, so the next one on this list, because there's a huge list, but I'm really going to go for now all the ones that came out after the film series. Uh, the Fellowship of the Ring, the uh, non-New Line cinema-related oh, yeah. version. Did you ever play that? I played that. Um, I got stuck uh, at the Old Man Willow. Oh, yeah? Because he, he shoots roots out and I just I kept dying I think I, I, I stuffed it in the bin when uh, <laughs> when I was having to stealthily sneak past the ring raids at the beginning yeah that was really irritating yeah, that, that, I don't know if that was true I found out there was a, like, a guide which said on the PC version an elf comes and saves you Brilliant. it's like really easy <laughs> in the console versions it's oh no you have to sneak past right yeah that was not a good game <laughs> uh, I think that, yeah not a good game I think it was Sierra um, yeah. Then there was the Two Towers in 2002, the first actual New Line-related uh, Lord of the Rings game, yeah. and it incorporated uh, all of the action scenes in Fellowship of the Ring as well. Yep, I really liked that game. Mm-hmm. So it was basically a brawler. Brawler, like Golden yeah. Axe for 2002. I've never played Golden Axe, I don't yeah, know. Like, oh my god, okay, right. It is like Golden Axe <laughs> for 2002, but with a Howard Shaw score from Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah, um, it's actually a good movie tying game, which is a, a very small amount. But um, I liked it because you could... There's lots of scenes, you could play them with multiple characters, and yeah. um, I, when I actually first saw this, uh, must probably was probably E3, before I came, I was like, what are all those gold things at Helm's Deep? Like, oh, they're elves. Because um, I didn't know they were actually putting elves in until I oh, right. came out. Um, so I was a bit confused. But I, I, I have played this through like five or six times and played all the there's sort of challenge Orphank levels where you're basically put in the centre room of Orphank and you get waves of enemies. 
which was very hard but and sort of fun, but I did it anyway. The only bits of uh, this game and its sequel that I really hated were where you had to babysit other characters. Like, Gimli's in trouble, save him. And it was just yeah. sort of, you know, I had to run across the screen, get people off Gimli's back. Then Legolas is in trouble. And yeah, it was like, can't you guys look after yourselves? You seem to do okay in the films. Yeah, and also it got um, stupidly easy when you, if you get, like, uh, Legolas leveled up. He's got mid-four arrows. You, yeah. you can shoot, like, three at once. Oh, right. He just mows down everything. But um, by today's standards, it has horrible graphics. So it's blocky yeah. hands. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Return of the King, much the same. Slightly better graphics. Uh, best uh, I, didn't, I didn't like it as much because the camera angle was... was Further out, so it, it oh, yeah. felt more like watching rather than playing. I remember it being uh, very grey. Yeah, and it had a, an awful uh, Pelennor Fields level where you have to shoot Moomakil with ballistas. Oh. That happened in the book, apparently, yeah. in the film. And a lot of uh, babysitting at the end when you're at the Black Gate. Gimli's in trouble, Gandalf's in uh, trouble, Mary's in trouble, yeah, um, in trouble. In Mount Doom, you've got to fight Gollum, get him to hang off the edge, and then stab down with your sword while he's hanging on the edge. What?! Yeah. I remember now, yeah. And they just keep crawling back up again. Yeah. It was effectively a quick time event. Yeah, but it, I don't know why they did that, why they didn't say, like, but they, I don't know if they were told you have to have X amount of levels. So they thought, oh, we have to do a, a Mount Doom one and do a weird boss fight with, uh, yeah. with Gollum. I think they uh, got, had to give, well, because this is the first one you got to play the Hobbits as well. Yeah, yeah, had like Pippin, nine Mouse, characters, so which was ridiculous. But for, for its time and for a movie tie-in game, they were the two towers and Return of the King were very good. Oh, and Return of the King also you got two player at the same time. Which is yeah, for some reason an oversight not being included in two towers. But both films for me um, lost a little bit of the immersiveness in that they could only incorporate the soundtracks for the previous films. So Two Towers only had the soundtrack for Fellowship of the Ring, so you didn't get the authentic... I actually remember turning off the music and actually sticking on my uh, CD soundtrack of uh, Two Towers just to, to get the Helm's Deep music I think there. I noticed that. And Return... I'm a big, big fan. Big fan of the music. And then oh, Return I of the King... Know. You know, like, James Batchelor quite likes John Williams. And, yeah, I... Uh, complete recordings. I yes. listen to them all the time they're so good um, but yeah and the Return of the King only had the music for the two towers so you, you never got that complete two towers experience feel but I mean yeah both good for, for brawlers the third age when it came along was effectively Final Fantasy X with a Lord of the Rings overshell to it mm-hmm. uh, but yeah I got to the Balrog and I could not beat the Balrog I, I think I had to grind a bit more than I had and I, I quite liked it but it's a horrible premise for a game well the you idea know. is that you're the fellowship B team yeah you're you tagging along behind the footsteps and tagging along behind them. and somehow you fighting the Balrog of Gandalf and none of the fellowship notice well no he, like the Balrog falls down a bit and then stops and you fight it and then he carries on yeah. falling with Gandalf yeah, it's almost like Back to the Future 2 in that respect yeah and before Moria the, the watcher destroys the wall there's uh, for some reason there's elves there yeah. I don't know where they're from and you kill the Watcher, then it luckily left a gap open for you to go through. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a really kind of stretched premise. And uh, the, the thing that annoyed me was that every single fight you get into, and every time you find a treasure chest, there's more and more kit for your characters. And you've got like an analogue of all of the, uh, the the Fellowship plus a few extra uh, hero characters. So you've got your Boromir type, you've got your Legolas type. Actually, you don't have a Legolas type. You've got a Ranger... Who's your bowman? And then you got an elf yeah. healer. 
and you got a dwarf who's just like Gimli. But every time you you fight someone, you get a bit more kit. But then you have to manually go in there and change their pauldrons. And if, if it was just like automatically, just give me the new kit, that's fine. It was cool because it, like it would change it on your character as well. So like you know, your actual fighting character would get constantly changing armor, but you had to keep changing it all the time. And it's like you you spent so much time in the menus fiddling about with it. But, uh, yeah, it's very simple. You run around on a map finding treasure chests and getting into random encounters. And the fighting system's very much like Final Fantasy X. And they have cinematics which include Ian McKellen's voice and, and various other characters, uh, actors, and it feels kind of authentic to the movie series. But I, I stopped near the end, and I probably should have carried on. I'm actually going to start playing it again to see if I can. The world of Middle-earth is changing. War is soon to come to our time. For a great evil has arisen in the east that threatens all of Middle-earth. Join us in our quest. Become our champion. Face the power of Mordor. And help to turn the tide. After that was uh, the strategy game, RTS, Battle for Middle-Earth in 2004, and then Battle for Middle-Earth 2 in 2005. Yeah, I played both those. Um, They're weird. Battle for Middle-Earth was uh, based on the film more than two was, but I think the first battle was Moria, the nine hero characters running through the the mines, because obviously there's no one else. Mm. And then it went on to, you know, you had the Fellowship missions, which were good, and then it had the rest of the missions, which were awful. Which was basically, uh, to start with, it was, you know, going through Rohan's, you had, you had like a, a good mission, and then you had like, oh, I'm just AMA now, and I've got to run around building up a castle and do like, you know, standard RTS fare, which completely, it's sort of, it's ruined the experience of just playing the fellowship missions. And you can have Boromir at Helm's Deep, because if you save him at Alan Hen, uh, he just joins you. <laughs> You create a major paradox! <laughs> yeah. I think the second one has a, a voice like for, El, for Hugo Weaving. I don't think it's actually him. Um, See, the further it, away we get from the film uh, <laughs> trilogy, the less they actually yeah. featured in the, in the games. Um, Lord of the Rings Online, this is not based on the films at all, but definitely based no. on the books. I've heard good things about it. I it's still it going, it's free yeah. to play. I bought it at launch, I bought a lifetime subscription. That's how much I was looking Have forward to it. Have you used it? Uh, sort of, I played for about a year, which is probably equivalent to the price of, so technically, and I now get premium membership for the, the, so I get like points every month that I'm not actually using at the moment. This but, is for folks uh, who are unaware, uh, a World of Warcraft style MMO. But it was actually, I mean, the story wise, it was really good and I, I, I really did like it. Uh, the voice acting was a bit dodgy in places because right. they just had like sort of, Click on character at the same Megavall, and, and it was an annoying American voice. Megavallon! <laughs> yeah, it didn't really oh, sound it. It's worth playing as it's free, I think. It's the... Yeah, it's, it's definitely worth a try. And is it that massive a download, do you think? Uh, I, I think I think it's, yeah. Because <laughs> they, they've updated it's a big it. World. So, you know, yeah. Well, looking at this um, uh, list, frankly, if you want an in depth Lord of the Rings experience in video games right now, it's probably your best bet. If you've got a decent yeah. gaming PC, that's 
you know, give it a go. It's free yeah, to play for the first few. I think it's quite sections. scalable, so you can get it, but it looks awful at lower levels. <laughs> so if you've got a good PC, it's good. Uh, next up, Lord of the Rings Conquest in 2009. Battlefront style game. Yeah. Basically, you know, it rests solely on there being a multiplayer. Concern. You'd have to be playing with other people who really want to play it. Yeah, it was not really a big commercial success and not very wide. Uh, I mean, I remember having great fun on Star Wars Battlefront and Star Wars yeah, Battlefront Yeah, the Battlefront games were excellent, but they were sort of like the first, yeah, sort of like the first or the first popular games that did that sort of yeah. thing. And Conquest. Now there's just so, so many other things to be doing. Yeah, and Conquest yeah. coming so long after the films, it's just I don't think there's going to be. The, the, I didn't think there was going to be the six years after the last yeah. film was released, and uh, yeah. three years before the next. I don't know really why they released it then. I just think they should have just given up and. I think we're just experimenting with different genres at this point. Going, oh, I don't know, a battlefront style game, <laughs> platformer, <laughs> um, kiddie game, Aragorn's Quest, 2010. This I actually kind of want to play simply because it's got Sean Astin telling you a, tw- a twisted kiddie version of Lord of the Rings with Aragorn as the the battling hero to his kids. <laughs> but it's actually Sean Astin, and I don't know. It's 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 waggle control Wii stuff. So basically, yeah. you're, you're Aragorn. You're going in. You're pounding your hand frantically. You're killing lots of spiders, and uh, but it's going to be very sort of placed. It's like Wii level graphics. It's also on the PlayStation Three with Move, <laughs> but I have another PlayStation Three or Move. So guess it'll be the Wii, if anything. I, I'm I'm oddly curious about this one, but I suspect it'll probably be closest to your favourite, the Two Towers. Yeah, probably graphics-wise, at least. Anyway. Yeah. It's the same power machine. <laughs> yeah. So you want to hear the story of Aragorn, King of Gondor? Hey! It might be a little scary. We won't be frightened, Father. Well, I guess it'll be all right. When I first met him, he was known as Strider. Ranger of the North. A man as mysterious as his name. His courage was endless. As he fought to save our world. And become the king of men. After that came uh, a, a game that Sharon and I tried a lot earlier this year, uh, War in the North, kind of like an online version of The Two Towers. Again, it's 2011, so it comes eight years after the uh, last uh, New Line film. No one is involved with it, and yet, conversely, it is supposed to take place in the movie universe. So they don't actually ever explicitly say, this is the movie version of Lord of the Rings, but it totally is supposed to be. But the people they've got doing the voiceovers are awful. The Aragorn, the Gandalf, abominable. And you only see them like a little bit in the quest. And again, you're controlling a Fellowship B team. you got an elf healer, you got a dwarf who's exactly like Gimli, and you got a man who's just a man from Gondor. And they're so pally with each a, other. He's a ranger. I don't yeah. know. They're so so pally with each other from the get-go. There's no conflict in the group whatsoever. There's no characterization at all. It's just a brawler. I really liked it, though. Oh, yeah? 
because the I, I thought the gameplay was solid enough to disregard the characterization and plot. It's set uh, up for precisely one player or precisely three players. If you're two humans and a computer control player, you're screwed because you spend the entire time trying, trying to keep that computer player alive. If you've got two computer AIs, then at least they can heal you and back you up and heal each yeah. other. But if it's one computer guy, he becomes a liability because you've got to tap each other out whenever you go down. Yeah, I just did, I just did single player, but I liked the sort of had some backstory, like the, what's happening in the north and, mm. And that interesting in a sort of story point of view, but I quite liked it. Yeah. It did seem to take some cues from uh, Dragon Age Origins, although not the characterization and plot, obviously. Yeah. I, I certainly thought it looked good. That was one thing I would say yeah. about it. It was the way they had the um, the environment design. It, it felt authentic from that perspective. Yeah. Well, it's one of the only ones on 360 designed for the, the modern age. So also, yeah, also I said I bought it on PC for about ten pounds, so that's right. a bit more. <laughs> I, I would say like if you have got two friends who are willing to play uh, online the whole time, it's great. The other thing that was a real pain is you can only play with people who have gotten just as far as you. If your friend has made it a little bit further, you can't join in their game. They can join in your game. It's really complicated. Like we we got um, Kai uh, from the uh, forums, and he bought the game and he slogged through, and then he got way further than us. So we were trying to catch up with him, but it got so frustrating trying to keep this AI alive the whole time that we just gave up in the end. Well, I suppose he could have joined in with us, but it'd be like, well, I guess we'll just st- hang back and let you carve your way through here. Yeah. I hate it when that happens. So yeah, it was, I suppose it's my fault for wanting everyone to be equal. What makes our action RPG unique is our three-player independent co-op. You're going to do something that Lord of the Rings fans have always been waiting for. When you play War in the North online with your friends, you're going to be depending on them. Each character brings something unique to the Fellowship that helps them support the other characters. The elf can provide shields from missile attacks. The ranger can go invisible to sneak behind enemy lines. The dwarf can tank and draw enemies onto him. You can actually build up and pull off these amazing critical kills together as a fellowship, as a team. The more you kill in a row, the more XP you get, making you an even bigger, badder badass. play through the story campaign just like you would in single player or you can work on the challenges in challenge mode and try to beat them with your friends the challenge missions are an interesting part of war in the north it allows players to go through and find loot find different weapons and armor that they may not have found in the story campaign it allows players to replay areas that they've been to before that they might want to explore again settled on three-player co-op for two main reasons. Firstly, from all our playtesting, it's a lot of fun and it works very well with our game systems and our combat system. And secondly, because it really fits the story and the fiction of Middle-earth. One of the things that Snowballine has done over the years is really focused on the action RPG elements in gaming. And that's something that we're bringing to new heights with War in the North. This is going to be our next greatest action RPG. And finally, Lego The Lord of the Rings, the video game 2012. Do you like Lego games, Chris? Uh, yep. 
Okay. Right. Well, then you I don't probably like this. Yeah, I don't know about this though because they they talk. They do talk. But they've talked and for the past couple of games now, haven't they? I know. I haven't played. <laughs> the last one I played was Lego Harry Potter One. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, so I don't know about talking. That's the point. I, I like the sort of the winks to speech rather than actually them yeah. saying the lines. So um, the physical comedy rather but, than me. yeah. But so is I, it actually their voices and yeah? It's, it's clips from the film. I, yeah, that's the thing. It, it's clips but, from the film, but I suspect that clips from the film combined with Lego humor, like you know, Boromir gets arrows in him and then falls <laughs> to pieces. I'm probably gonna yeah. go. Yeah, you know what? I really love that scene. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to buy it because it's a yeah. <laughs> it's a Lego game and it's Lord of the Rings game, and uh, but I just yeah, I'm just slightly worried about the the talking. I think the tone might be somewhat mismatched, but yeah. I, mainly down to the fact that I uh, Lego games for me are you walk into a room, you smash everything. <laughs> Yeah. You get stuck, you eventually find that there's a thing buried in the floor that you hadn't found, and then you move to another new area, you get stuck, you smash everything, until eventually you find your way through. It's just, yeah. Well, I'm not going to badmouth Lego games, they are beloved by millions. It's just not my thing. Kind of like the uh, the books. Sorry, Sharon, you haven't been able to talk much. Did you want to say anything about anything we've talked about? I, I honestly don't think it's it's really it's not really your interesting. specialty, is it? Well, no, it, it's it's not. Um, but it's been really really interesting listening to you and, and Chris talk about them. But I just I don't think that I've got anything to add that you haven't said already. Right. Um, I mean, I think the the main thing that I wanted to um, to talk about was the the book of the Hobbit. Oh yeah, do you want, um, do you want to do that because you actually did slog through the whole thing, so you yeah, I, I did read the whole thing of that, and the, my original intention had been to read the whole of the Lord of the Rings as well, but I just I hadn't been able to to fit it in, and it suffers the. I pace stopped because it was actually angering me so much and putting so much pressure on me to finish before we started doing this podcast that I thought, you know, it's actually what can I achieve with this? All I can do is annoy fans of the book by telling them how much I dislike slogging through the prose. As far as it's not my medium. It's fine. Everyone who loves the book, that's cool. You guys enjoy that. I love the films and everything yeah. about them. That's my specialty. Yeah, basically reading them through again, I've, I've distanced. I mean, the book is the book, the films are the films, and the rest of this is the rest of this. I think it's, yeah. you need to do that, otherwise you get very angry. I, I think that's a, that's an excellent point, Chris. I mean, the, the, the text of The Hobbit, what hit me when I was reading it through this time, because like I said, I did read it when I was a lot younger and just read it as a story, but what what struck me this time was that there's there is a really exciting adventure underneath Tolkien's prose, but by God, do you have to dig to get to it? <laughs> He's got this way of he'll set up a scene of of danger and excitement and, and conflict um, and tension and suspense and you you know like the one that really hit me was you know when they're all sitting in the trees and they've got the the wolves and the goblins 
the wargs and the goblins. Are they actually referred to as wargs? They're wargs in this because they they remade the wargs to look like hyenas in the film, and they're now changing that so they're going to be more wolf-like for The Hobbit. Right, okay. Well, the, that bit, anyway, when they they all come together. The beginning of that scene where it all started to build, um, I was actually sat there really worried about what was happening to them and terrified of what was going to happen next. And, you know, knowing that Gan, uh, Gandalf was going to do something to get them out of it, but, you know, when, when was it going to come? And then he, he just throws in there, um, uh, but everything was absolutely fine, and, and, you know, how this all turned out was. And then you get this really bone-dry description of the, the sequence of events that result in them getting down from the trees. And it's like it just dispels any sense of... Um, Tension. It's like he thought that the little kids might get too scared and they needed to be alleviated to that. Well, I think what it comes down to is that he describes very very well and i will say this the the um it's a very evocative book and the, you can visualize what he's he's trying to to get you to see extremely effectively his descriptive text is excellent i can't fault it but the problem is it's not he's he's not very good at telling a story you know, if, if, if Tolkien was, was one of these people who'd been, who told stories around a fire, he wouldn't have been allowed to do it anymore because he people would just give would away all off. the endings before he even started. And I just, I found it so frustrating because I got to the end and I thought, well, yeah, I really did actually enjoy the story, but I had to comb through a lot to find the story within all of that, that description and Thorin's death. When um, he's talking to Bilbo and they have this whole, you know, Thorin's basically saying to him, forgive me for the, the way that I acted and, and for look what I've brought upon us by my, my greed and all the rest of it. And it's totally diffused. There's no emotional sustenance in it at all. It's just described in a very brittle way. I, I just, I don't know. I found my brain trying to rewrite the scene to be more emotional. He suffers from what George R. R. Martin does of it in... He has a clear idea of what he wants to do, but he needs a better editor to sort of pare it down to what is important and what actually That That was one works. of the, the comments <laughs> in one of the documentaries, actually, was the, the publisher said, you didn't edit Tolkien. Well, maybe somebody should have. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what's the fun of George, George R. R. Martin. The, the, the last book should have been half as long, and it would actually got me a better story. I think it's the... I would have said with... no, and then I got to the, the middle of Storm of Swords, and I've yet to go back... <laughs> Yeah, I, I, he, I, he's going to die before he finishes it. The oh. rate he's going, because he just doesn't have a good editor. But um, Joe Rowling, you could say the same thing about her. When she got to Phoenix, the the book was immense. Yeah, and it suffered for quality because she rushed it because well, she was forced to rush it because they wanted to get it out there for for the Christmas mm. season. Uh, but the hobby, I I like. I think it's the better book uh, compared to The Lord of the Rings I, I specifically like the I think the intro is perfect and I think the intro is perfect because that was the bit he concentrated on that was his first idea of what a hobbit is and mm. uh, I just like that passage which is butchered by um, the hobbit film where it's written, it's spoken really badly uh, I think The Hobbit 77 uh, yep yeah. yeah hopefully it's <laughs> well, hopefully they're not the Hobbit they're just going to show it because they've already introduced who hobbits are so yeah I do think in terms of making the fantasy world seem real, you can't fault 
the way Tolkien presented it. And I, it, because of him, the whole thing about him being the father of modern fantasy, I will, I will go with that. That I, I expect maps in my fantasy novels now because of him, yeah. because of the way that was laid out. Yeah, fantasy novel without a map just seems a little bit half-assed. Yeah, I think yeah, the, <laughs> the thing that Tolkien's definitely good at is the sort of the macro world, but he's because he, he's obviously put a lot of work into getting that right and all the languages are uh, correct, and you know it feels like a living world. He's just then breaks down in the, the sort of social interactions between characters yeah. and like the, I said, the, feeling the, of, the storytelling. That's where yeah. it, it falls down. You know, the man was not a. Uh, um, he's not a storyteller really he was a historian and a linguist and that's what he was trying to create and in that he succeeded admirably Um, I don't think that he when he set out to write the book he was like right I will now write the book that will define fantasy for the 20th century I'm sure he wanted to make it an excellent account but it, it almost seemed like he was writing more for himself than for other people before we go I've listened to more of the radio play since recording this show and Peter Woodthorpe's Gollum isn't actually too bad the worst casting turned out to be Theoden Jack May who played Igor in Count Duckula and amused me greatly in my childhood now sadly departed gives the most over the top pompous theatrical performance I've ever heard in any Lord of the Rings production he sounds like the caricatures of actors in that episode of Blackadder the Third unfortunately in the Battle of Pelennor Fields the producers put him up against the poshest Witch King of Angmar imaginable it's one of the only truly misjudged moments in what has otherwise been a fantastic and surprisingly faithful journey through Tolkien's original saga. The gate is broken, but the enemy has fallen back. There is not a moment to lose. Elmer, lead your company to the gate to secure its defence and destroy the siege engines. I go, my lord. Where is the captain of the enemy? There! Where the banner with its black serpent flies in the wind. He's seen you. He spurs towards you. And we shall advance to meet him. Now, Snowman, you have ridden hard and long. But bear me now against the adversary. Ride with me, Dunhelm! <laughs> Dutard King, the hour of thy doom has come. Throw down your sword. To me! To me! Okay, I think that takes us up to 2001, when The Fellowship of the Ring came out. So we will be back in a few days' time with the first part of The Fellowship of the Ring shows. Chris, would you like to tell the people at home, who are obviously Lord of the Rings fans, what Game Burst episodes might interest them that you've done recently? Right, I'm going to be very selfish and talk about my, the one I did, uh, the minorities in video games uh, roundtable, which obviously Sharon was in as well. Oh, that was Sharon and Leah, wasn't it? Yeah, and uh, Sinan. And Sinan, yeah. Um, that was July. Yeah, that was a while ago. It was a good one, that. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, so look on the Game Burst feed for minorities in video games. Uh, yeah. And uh, Sharon, what are you guys going to be talking about in the next coming Dorkcasts? Um, well, we are recording tomorrow evening, um, and I'm not entirely certain what the other guys have got lined up, um, but I am going to be talking about Fifty Shades of Grey, oh, <laughs> for which I apologise in advance. If you want to blame anybody, one of our listeners, um, uh, Dan Ragnar, tweeted us all and said, what, what 
books that were very popular or had been recommended to us did we actually then hate on reading. And um, and I mentioned that I hadn't actually read this one yet, but I had a feeling it was going to be on my list. So then I thought, to back that up, I'd probably better read it. And it kind of grew from there. Okay, we'll see you next time for The Fellowship of the Ring. I literally cannot wait. And I'm going to be studying every aspect of it for the next week or so. So I've been Alex Shaw, and I'd like to thank my guests, Sharon Shaw and Chris Eason. Thank you. Thank you. And to play us out, I have something very special for you all. It's a magical young violinist named Lindsay Sterling. I've mentioned her many times on Twitter and on the forum, but this is the first time I've played her on this show. This is Howard Shaw's Lord of the Rings medley, and the video was filmed in New Zealand and gets me where I live. And I urge you all to check out this and her many other stunning videos on YouTube. And if you like what you hear, her album of original tracks is available on iTunes. That name again? Lindsay Sterling.
Lemmy Winks has made it as the tale is nearly through. Great job, Lemmy Winks. Thanks to you, we are all free. But your adventures are just beginning. For you are no ordinary gerbil, Lemmy Winks. You are the gerbil king. All oh, hail the gerbil king. Now that you're the gerbil king, there's more adventures to go out. Fly away to faraway lands and to the setting sun. There's still so many enemies and battles yet to fight. For Lemmy Winks, the gerbil king, to be told another night. Lemmy, Lemmy, Lemmy Winks. Let me wings, 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 let me wings